Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, a roundtable-style spin-off from Adventure Rider Radio that we do each month about motorcycle travel. And on this episode of Raw, episode 69, silver linings when things go terribly wrong, small world experiences, some gear talk, what does everybody ride with on both long and short trips as far as boots and helmet goes. And of course, we touch on numerous other side topics, but equally important like air vests and how to avoid a hippopotamus at night. All that and more coming up. This episode is supported by Fresh Tracks, facilitating adventurous conversations, freshtracks.co.uk. Now, before we get going, I want to give a shout out to some people that have really helped the show incredibly this past month with support of $50 or more. Here we go. Emmaus Moto Tours, Jeffrey Kogan, Michael Fodor, Darren Stevens, Love Loudon, Susan Bithel. Thank you all very much. That's just so incredible for us. Hey, you don't have to support with $50. Any amount will help. Drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com and click on support. We would love to get you on our patron account so we can count on you being there monthly for us. And these shows that we do, Adventure Rider Radio and Adventure Rider Radio Raw are built on a model of advertising and listener support. So stop waiting for everyone else to support. We need your support. We need you to step up and support the show. We'd really appreciate it. Now, just in case Raw is a new discovery for you, I just mentioned we have Adventure Rider Radio. That's our flagship show. It comes out every week, all available at AdventureRiderRadio.com. Now, here we go with Adventure Rider Radio Raw for October 2021. Recorded live from the Canoe West Media Studio deep in the boreal forests of North America, this is Adventure Rider Radio Raw, roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind, completely unscripted, raw, and personal. My name is Jim Martin, and today the virtual roundtable afforded through the magic of the internet, I am joined by my regular Overland co-host. I'm going to start with Michelle Lampfair because Michelle was not with us last time, and she's back now. Michelle, I understand you're enjoying some incredible sunshine where you are right now? Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe not. I'm uh, enjoying being tucked indoors at the moment. It's actually snowing outside, which is not uh, mm. not something I'm super excited about yet. It feels a little bit too early, and I still uh, still want to go riding. So this is interrupting my my chance to go ride a few more days. So are you yeah. close enough to something else that you can like, you sort of ride somewhere? Like, is there a way out for you of the, of the snow? Uh, with a a four-wheel drive. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was going to picture like maybe you're at the snow line or something like that. You know, all you have to do is head south or east or something like that and you get into some warmer weather. We're downhill, actually. I'm at 5,300 feet, so 1,600, 1,700 meters, something like that. Mm. Um, No, it's it's, going to be winter soon here, really for the long haul. So it's... I, I. I think we're going to have probably six to 12 inches of snow in this storm started this morning. Um, but by the weekend, actually, a lot of it will have melted and I'll be able to ride again next week. So oh, don't oh, feel don't feel too sorry for me. I'm oh. not done yet. That's exciting. I love snowstorms. I absolutely love it. I love any kind of storm. I, I love yeah. when everything shuts down and, you know, you get this massive storm. It's uh, it's just very exciting. My, both myself and Elizabeth have always been, we've always liked that since we were young. But uh, Shirley Hardy Ricks, Brian Ricks in Australia, what, what do you guys think of the snow report? I, I, I don't know what a snowstorm is. <laughs> Good for you. Don't we avoid it? <laughs> wow. You, know. you have to travel a long way to get snow here, and it's such a small snow season and only a couple of locations. Snow is irrelevant to us, and it's springtime here and a little bit overcast today, but uh, the weather is pointing towards happiness. You probably don't even have to drain your pool in the wintertime, do you? You, you just put a cover over uh, it. No. Right. 
No. No, no, no. Brian's already had a swim a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, it was about 10 degrees, which is okay if you've been out um, hot and sweaty and all the rest of it. Mm. So, yeah. Sam Manicom is in the UK. Hello, Sam. Hi, Jim. I tell you what, the things we're all talking weather, um, today has been one of those gorgeous autumn days that I really, really like. It started off nice and chilly, beautiful sunshine up here because we live on top of a hill and we look down across the city and through into the, the valley, the river valley. And down there, it was um, it was just really misty. And um, so you could just see parts of the city poking out of the mist and so on. But that all burnt off within an hour or so. And it's just been a drop-dead gorgeous day ever since. So I like this time of the year with all the changing colours and um, the clear skies and so on. Not so much on the rainy days, but today, yeah, love it. It's been good. Grant Johnson is in British Columbia. And Grant, um, you're probably in some pretty nice weather right now. Yes, we have good weather. But... So the writing's on the wall, or should I say the snow is on the peaks. So we're looking up at the snow about um, 500 to 1,000 feet above us. Yep, snow is close. I just mm. hope it stays there for the winter. It's possible that we don't get snow here, but we probably will. But in the meantime, I'm getting myself organized with our, our, in our new house. I've got a two-car garage, which is reserved for motorcycles. And yes, Brian, you can park your bike there. <laughs> okay, when you come Thank visit. You. <laughs> Thank you, Grant. There will be room and, uh, yeah, I'm just getting it all organized so I can do some work on, I've got three motorcycles to work on this winter, all need something done. So that'll keep me busy. Uh, the other things I've been doing is working on getting events organized for next year. We're working on dates and where we're going to be holding events and getting all of that sorted. Plus, I've also been working on upgrades for the website. So I've been busy things have been happening and um, yeah, looking forward to the winter where I can actually get some stuff done instead of being out riding, which I didn't get enough of this year, but hey, you get what you can, right? Boy, events sound good. I mean, and there has been some events in the U.S. that have been going on. They sound like they've just been absolutely fantastic. People just love getting out there. So I'm sure the HU events running next year will be a huge boon. Oh yeah. The ones we've had so far, we had uh, France and Germany both ran this year. And they were a huge success. Uh, France was absolutely book solid. We were turning people away at the gate. So it's been good. And uh, South Africa is coming. For anybody who's in South Africa or heading there, get yourself signed up. It's coming up soon. When is that? You would. I knew you, you know, were going to You know, I knew that. you didn't know because you said soon. You just sounded too vague. It's, it's a vague grant. You don't hear very much, <laughs> but but it was in there. I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> so um, changing um, the subject um, quickly for you, Grant. Um, where is it? Where is it in South Africa? Because you've got yes. a cracking venue, haven't you? Oh, it's absolutely the most fantastic venue. It's in a town called Potchefstroom, which nobody's ever heard of. It's a small town, uh, but it's near Johannesburg. And the, um, it's run at the Elgro River Lodge, which is owned by Kobus Furi, who is a serious motorcycle traveler. He's been all over the place on his bikes. I can't remember how many bikes he's got, but he's got a fair stock of them. And um, he just wants everybody to come to the event and have a good time. His, he owns a game farm. How's that sound? Nice. Mm, and nice. you can ride your bike with the wild animals. The wow, good part that's... is there's no lions and tigers, so you're safe. <laughs> Safe? But relatively, I mean, the giraffes <laughs> might decide to come over and stomp on you or something. You know, I've but, seen a uh, video with giraffes by motorcycles and, and it looks kind of dangerous. You know, the, the giraffe is pretty big. They are so big. Yeah. You, it's hard to comprehend how big they are until you're 30 feet away from them. And you go, oh my goodness, these guys are big. 
But uh, yeah, you can ride your bike in the game park with, you know, guided carefully, et cetera. Um, but it's, it's a fantastic venue. Oh, date. Yes. I knew there was something about that. <laughs> I was looking for something. South Africa, November 4 to 7. November 4 to 7. Okay. Well, I, I want to jump back to Michelle because Michelle wasn't with us last month. Uh, she did try to check in, but uh, or at least that's what she tells us anyway. I'm, I'm not really sure what the story is here. <laughs> so, so Michelle, where were you and, and, and what happened? Oh, well, I went to Pakistan for a couple of weeks and the day that I was supposed to be calling in was actually nighttime over there. Um, I think it was two o'clock in the morning. I'd set my alarm and had charged my phone, had an extra battery pack. So I was good to go for the evening. Uh, got up at two o'clock, actually like one thirty. got myself sorted in a quiet place, went to sign into the internet and there wasn't any. <laughs> it hadn't occurred to me that the place that we were staying, because we were up in the mountains, a lot of places um, turn off the power at night, they run on solar and then they have generator backup in case there's power needed, but they don't run that during the night. So the Wi-Fi router was out and there was no Wi-Fi. So I couldn't sign mm. in and I'm so sorry to have missed the call, oh, but I've wow. listened to it. And of course it was a great episode as always. And yeah, I missed well, you guys. Very kind of you. We, we missed having you. It was very exciting, but we weren't surprised. I mean, you're on a trip and <laughs> you know, but it's kind of, it's a neat picture I have in my mind of you, you know, in the mountains, in Pakistan, in the middle of the night, getting up that one light that's on in your room as you're <laughs> banging around. I'm just wondering what everyone else would have thought as you're sitting in there laughing and talking away in the middle of the night, if, if you managed to, to get the call through. Well, I wasn't going to do it. We actually had roommates on the trip. So I was trying to be considerate of my roommate and I used my phone flashlight and kind of snuck out to the common area. Um, yeah. Uh, and I, I had a space away from the other guest rooms that would have been fine if I'd had Wi-Fi. <laughs> so, so talk about the trip. What was the trip about? And what was it like? Oh my gosh, it was amazing. So there were nine American women that went over um, over to Pakistan. You know, and I've done a lot of travel internationally, either by just riding from the States or shipping a bike. I've flown into countries and rented a bike by myself and, and traveled around and with friends, a couple of friends, but never done a group trip. And I wasn't sure what I would think. It's a lot of people that I didn't know. But it was so much fun. It was just a fantastic group of people. Um, yeah, we gelled really quickly. Of course, you're meeting people at the airport as you're in transit and getting there. Um, and we landed, um, oh gosh, the first weekend in September and spent two full weeks riding. From We flew into Islamabad and then rode northeast um, up out of Islamabad into Gilgit, uh, past Audubon Lake, into Gulmet, uh, rode up to Kunjarab Pass, which is up by the China border, and then back uh, down to Gilgit and across to Shandur and Chitral and made sort of a big loop and back into Islamabad, riding through high mountain passes. We were riding in the Hindu Kush Mountains. It was absolutely stunning scenery for any anybody who's ridden there i'm sure they can vouch for it no it was breathtaking and we had a great time what was it like dealing with covid and what sort of precautions did you have to go through so before leaving the u.s i had to take a covid test and have of course a negative or a negative pcr test within 72 hours of my flight leaving the u.s 
And when we landed in Islamabad, we transited through uh, Doha, Qatar, and just stayed in the airport, didn't have any testing or restrictions there. Of course, full-time masks. So from the moment we stepped into an airport, I was in a mask for something like 50 hours because I had I had four flights to transit from my home in South Dakota to get overseas and um, some extended layover times. Um, Gosh, I think it was about 50 hours total. I was in a mask. When we landed in Islamabad, we had to take another uh, one of the quick tests for COVID. And then once we cleared, we could actually leave the airport and really had to do the same before we headed back home. We had to have a... um, negative PCR within 72 hours of flying out of Islamabad and then had a quick test when we landed in the States and off we went. Wow. That sounds like fun. And coming back was fine and no problems coming home? No, no problems coming home. Other than that jet lag, that that was the hard part <laughs> with an 11 hour time difference from home. Uh, that, that was kind of a steep mountain to climb literally and figuratively. When you got there and started to ride, what was that like landing and then riding and dealing with the jet lag? Well, it was, I mean, it was challenging. We landed at something like three o'clock in the morning, but by the time we got our, our COVID tests, got through customs and immigration, got our bags, all of our gear, got out to a transit shuttle to go into our hotels in Islamabad, it was something like nine o'clock in the morning. And we got on bikes at 1 p.m. So we had maybe three or four hours. Um, But that day was only a a short day of riding within the city of Islamabad just to get accustomed to the bikes. Uh, We rode up to an overlook. There's a mountain or a hill in the center of the city. So we rode up to the overlook to get kind of a view of Islamabad, then rode back down to our hotel and started putting equipment on bikes, getting our panniers, our tank bags, everything set up the way that we wanted them. And we rode out of Islamabad then the next morning. So we were only on the bikes a couple of hours that day. Mm. And it was, I will say, probably both good and bad. I wouldn't say that my, uh, you know, response times and, and my reaction times were really very sharp after being awake for so long, but we were only riding around the city at kind of low speeds. And, and it was good just to kind of, you know, get awake and, and then sort of, uh, you know, get some fresh air, get a lay of the land, and then be able to get a good night's sleep before we headed out the next morning at six. Uh, surely you guys have ridden this route as well. We have, yes, we have. Um, do they now allow bikes on the? Is it the Grand Trunk Road? Grand Trunk Road, yeah. We weren't allowed to ride. We there. weren't allowed to ride on that, so we had to go through all the little villages, which was a little challenging. But once you get up into the Karakoram Mountains, it's some of the most beautiful scenery you'll ever see, and uh, wonderful people, really great people. It, it, it's really hard to describe, isn't it, Michelle? It, it's just so beautiful. The 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 natural beauty just takes your breath away. I can remember riding around a corner and Cheryl was whining like a humper snipe diff on the back about how cold she was and we, we, took, we came around the corner and there was this this glacier coming down this um, mountain pass and she just went wow and we just had to stop and take it all in and just the, the silence up there and uh, it was just fantastic. And we didn't make it to the Chinese border because of the snow, the snow but yeah. you got all the way up there and had a look over into the other world. 
We did. Yeah, we were. It was actually much warmer than I think maybe uh, some other years have been. And we were able to get right up to the pass, right up to the razor wire fence because the borders are closed right now. So they had a razor wire draped across the road and some barricades. But we could see the gate uh, for the pack what is it, the Pac-China Friendship Bridge and Tunnel yeah. and then the gate itself. So, yeah, we were right up there. And you've described it perfectly. It is just breathtaking around every corner, over every pass, looking down into the next valleys. It, I mean, every landscape is more stunning than the last. It's beautiful. The rivers are just raging and they're an unusual color, aren't they? They're sort of, I don't know, an olivey, muddy green. But yeah. um, the, the mountains, are, the colours in the mountains, are, it's sort of bland but beautiful at the same time. It's a really extraordinary landscape. It really is. I After I got home, I saw someone post on a page on Facebook that they were hoping to go see the Pasu Cones and that the Pasu Cones was something that was on their bucket list. And I had just come from there, which was amazing. And they were these really steep mountains, really triangular. They looked sort of like a row of birthday party hats sat next to each other on a table, very pointy yeah. cones. And they were just lovely. We, we parked on the side of the road and watched them for about 20 minutes and took photos. And I could just see the colors of the mountains change as the sun was setting from like peach mm. to grays and purples. And it, it was just beautiful. Michelle, what yeah. was that like when you're riding with with the group? Because you, you said it's new for you as far as when you want to mm. stop and look at something. So you come across, uh, you know, a bit of scenery where you want to stop. Did you just stop or what do you do with that? It, yeah, we did. And thankfully, I think that um, our guide had a really good plan in place. So our guide was the leader of the ride and he was the fastest rider. And uh, there were actually 11 people in total on bikes because the guide was the lead rider, the nine women were in the middle, and then there was a sweep rider at the back. And that person literally just had to always stay at the back. So once we knew this, if a, a sweep person came up and I could see this guy getting near me, that told me I was the last woman rider and I needed to get moving. <laughs> so so yeah. were you the face that he saw the most? No, I was not. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I still made plenty of stops and took hundreds of photos. So, yeah. Nice. And you've been posting some of those photos um, on social media, um, yeah. mainly Facebook or are you doing Instagram as well? I do Facebook and Instagram both. Yes. Oh, okay. So I posted lots on both. Oh, so if anybody's interested in seeing those photos, I've seen some of them and uh, yeah, it looks amazing. It's just one of those things that just makes you want to go visit. It, it, it was obviously well worth it. You would, you would advise people to go? Absolutely, I would. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I had a lot of family members who were nervous about me going overseas, which I think is normal in, you know, any kind of long distance travel, particularly concerning during the age of COVID. Um, you know, and there was also some political turmoil going on in a neighboring country in Afghanistan just before I went over. So I understand everybody's concerns. But I, I want to say we were so well treated. The country was so hospitable, just the kindest people. And we didn't have any kind of concerns, issues. We didn't see anything that looked out of place. Everything was just life as normal. And it was a fantastic trip. So I'm really glad I went. Yeah, and I think traveling in a group like that, Michelle, um, it would give you a good feeling of confidence having lots of people around you all the time and having uh, local guides front and back of the ride. 
Yes. Will help with language problems or, you know, seeking out those things that we need in the middle of the day, like a cold drink and a toilet. Um, it's just would just make life a lot easier too, a lot more comfortable for you and your other riders. Mm. It was. It was really unusual because I'm usually having to take you know, take care of my own bike, you know, oil a chain, check my yeah. tire pressure, all of that. Man, I was pampered. I didn't have to do anything but take pictures and go get a cold drink. It was, it was luxury. It's, it's like movie star adventure motorcycling. <laughs> Absolutely. When we did the Indian trip, Michelle, we'd get up in the morning and not only had the bikes all been prepped and everything, they'd been turned around and were facing in the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> wow. We did, we did nothing. <laughs> we did one in um, Vietnam up near Sapa, heading towards the Chinese border, and um, one of the guys got a flat time with it. Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll just stop and change the time. Well, the the boys that were leading the tour, they had all their bike uh, tire changing gear on one of the bikes, and while we had a cup of tea, they had changed, fixed the flat, changed the tire, bang, put it all back together, no problem. We finished our cup of tea and away we went again. And you pull How into, easy is that? You pull into the petrol station and one guy has the credit card and you all just go to the same bowser sure. and fuel up and the last guy pays with the credit card. <laughs> yep, that's exactly right. That's heaven. Lots of advantages to group travel, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, it's it's one of the things that I, I sort of sit back and observe quite often is that there's a certain amount of snobber, snobbery and looking down noses at tours. And I always think what a mistake that is because, you know, when you're doing a big overlanding trip, you're doing that big overlanding trip because A, you've got the freedom of responsibility to do it, B, you've got the time to do it, and C, you've got the money to do it. But the reality for most people is that they don't have um, that collection of things um, necessarily available. So being able to go on a well-run tour and experience the sort of things that you guys have just been talking about absolutely fantastic. I'd go on a tour. Of course I would. Um, it's, just how you've described it, I'm just sitting here thinking, wow, um, awesome, superb. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. A tour will take you to lots of places that you may not consider on your own. There's a company in Australia, Compass Expeditions, and um, through COVID they've had to rethink the way they do things. But we know plenty of people that have ridden the Road of Bones who would never have ridden the Road of Bones um, so in like, Russia yeah, on their own, yeah, right. but with a Compass Expeditions tour where you've got a support vehicle, you've got a group of people to help if you get bogged or fall over or whatever, um, they were able to to go to places they would never have dreamt of going on their own. But there's so many advantages. Get bobbed? Bogged, yes. Bogged, bogged. Bones bogged, bogged yeah. Yes. That's why we didn't do it to <laughs> on our own without a support vehicle. <laughs> um, but yeah, but there, there is a the little influence that gets uh, put out there. The Australian um, vernacular has infiltrated some parts of the world. I remember we were coming through Iran, sure, and we went to Nimrut Dagi, which is supposedly where Noah's Ark uh, ended up. Um, we didn't see it, but um, uh, we went into this little hotel uh. and. Um, and we handed over our Australian passports, and the guy said, Australia, ah! And I've got to be very careful here, don't yes. I, Shirley? Yes. Um, no wucking furries. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> and he said, oh, you must know Mr. Mike, Mr. Mike Ferris yes. from Ferris Tours. <clears throat> Apparently he goes through that that's one of his favourite sayings. So he's taught this little guy from Iran this um, rather crude comment that Australians make. <laughs> what was the comment again? I'm, I'm just wondering if I should go here, but I'm going to. <laughs> <laughs> 
hit the delete button, it's no wakan furries. Oh, <laughs> and is that how he said it? Yes. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. And that's how Mike Ferris says it as well. Right. And <laughs> um, Mike taught him and he thought it was hilarious. So yeah, we just laughed along. <laughs> just going back to Compass Expeditions a minute, um, they produced a film, didn't they, Michelle, about um, the, the trip across the road of bones? They did. Yeah. And as Brian and Shirley were telling about that, I was thinking, yeah, we'd had that as a film during Rev Sisters, a Rev Sisters film festival. So, yeah, fantastic adventures. And Charlie Borman did a few trips with them. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, he had a regular thing going there for a while, I thought, where they were, he was doing yeah. trips yeah. once a year or something like that with them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and now they've just changed their. Uh, their model, um, unlike many travel places, when COVID hit, they refunded everyone every penny that they put in for future trips and um, sold off all their bikes and said, that's it, we're done. But they've now reinvented themselves where you actually take your own bike and they've organised a freight company that you can yeah. freight your bike to where the tour starts and then they do all the tour leading as in the past, but you do it on your own bike, which in a lot of cases is probably better because you've got your bike set up the way you want it, which is one thing that always makes us happy people when we get on our bike that, that we're, you know, Brian's used to riding and I'm used to sitting on the back of, whereas you hire a bike. Um, Michelle, your bike was probably good for one up, but I have sat on some very unusual pinion seats when we've hired bikes. What are you talking about? That was all right. That one in Vietnam? I was just going to say the Vietnam one, wasn't it? (laughs) Yeah. The seat off a Honda car bolted to the luggage rack. (laughs) Great. Ah, luxury. Luxury. Yeah, you've got it, (laughs) That little bit of extra made made the very front end light, so the front wheel on the 250 Honda was lifting off the ground a fair bit. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know whether to hit you or not. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we've got we've got, uh, we got a bunch of things to talk about today. We're going to talk about silver linings and and, uh, and what a small world it is, inspirational places to visit, and then we're going to get into some gear talk as well. So we we may as well just jump right in here with them. Um, and you know what the thing is, I was talking with Ted Simon for an interview that we just aired on Adventure Rider Radio about panniers, and what we were talking about was him breaking his leg on the second round of the world trip. You, you guys all know this story, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So he's yeah. he's on his second trip around the world. He's seventy years old, sixty nine years old, I guess at the time, and um, he he goes through some mud and he paddles and his foot gets caught. You know the, the classic thing that you hear about when it comes to uh, hard panniers. Yeah. And he breaks his leg. Now, up until this point, he hadn't broken a bone in his body. And so when he's telling the story, I I have to ask. I just have to ask because, you know, he says this. I said, okay, so at this point, when you're laying there in the mud with his broken leg, are you wondering, you know, what great thing is going to happen next? And he just immediately answers, of course. (laughs) That's that's the way it works, right? (laughs) And and I'm thinking it's it's that habitual thought process, isn't it? The, the, The silver lining in every cloud. And, and when I hear people talk like that, uh, Michelle, when we talked earlier, you mentioned Ian Coates. That was another name that popped into my mind when I think of somebody who thinks with that attitude. Uh, Sam Manicom also has that attitude. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm looking at things and thinking, well, you know, something great is going to come of this. So so let's, let's talk about this. Um, you guys must have stories when a cloud has had a silver lining for you. Sam? Well, I think... It starts off by, um, the, the whole business of silver lining starts off by your mental attitude, doesn't it? And I think the reality is, if you're going to see silver linings, 
then you allow you need to allow yourself to feel really, really sorry for yourself, fed up that something's gone wrong. And this is important. Or the sensation gets can be bottled up and grieving for the loss of a dream or a, a loss of an adventurous moment or whatever else this oh, perhaps grieving is the wrong word. But we humans need this instinctive part of the process. But then the key is to stand back from that with eyes wide open and curiosity firing on all cylinders. Um, You're talking so a real short time of grieving about feeling bad, feeling sorry for yourself. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've lain underneath my bike with my legs stuck underneath it and thought, you idiot. And this really hurts. And how are you going to get out from underneath this? And God, what a stupid thing to do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But once I've gone through that thought process for a few minutes, then I'm thinking, right, okay, well, actually it's not peeing down with rain. Um, and I'm not about to be run over. And I wonder who's going to come along. And hey, look, there's a camel walking over there. I haven't seen a camel all day. And you know, it, all of a sudden the things start sort of setting into place because I'm lying on the ground underneath my bike, eyes wide open, thinking, okay, okay, what unexpected adventure is going to begin now because something has gone pear-shaped? And some of the things that have gone pear-shaped, yeah, they've been really big time and they've been very painful, but there has always been a silver lining. I mean, you guys always laugh at me because, yes, I am a bit of a disaster magnet and stuff does kind of find me to go wrong. Um, but, you know, I was thinking about this when you put the topic to us and um, slipping all the discs that I have on the var- various trips. Well, I asked myself, would I have got together with Birgit had I not flown to Germany to spend that two weeks with her with a slip disc? And because of that slip disc, um, ending up having to spend six weeks and we got to know each other so much better, which then turned on three months on, on Libby and um, Nepal and India, which then turned into four years riding through Africa, South, Central, North America. And maybe that series of silver linings happened just purely and simply because I dinged my back so badly. I mean, there's another perfect example that, well, that fits in with that. I was riding my motorcycle around the world. So I was riding. And yes, of course, I was taking little dip outs um, to, to stop in a place here for a couple of days or a week there or that that sort of thing. Because to me, that's all part of, the, uh, of a big journey. It's not just the riding. It's the things that you, the opportunities that you find along the way. But because of my slip discs, I ended up backpacking through Indonesia and Malaysia trying to get fit enough to ride the bike again, which, of course, the doctor told me I'd never do again. But because of that, I actually ended up spending a lot of time swimming in the most drop-dead gorgeous environments. You know, those um, holiday brochure turquoise seas with palm trees hanging out over white sand and that sort of stuff. And if I hadn't had this back injury, well, I might have stopped down there for a couple of days, but a whole week swimming off a beach like that, well, to me, that's a silver lining. It's just something going wrong opened up a new opportunity for something that perhaps I wouldn't have done. And it made me smile. I could go on. But I need to let everybody else talk about a few of those. You've probably got the most list, the longest list of all of us, though. <laughs> of silver linings, because I guess if you're going to have a silver lining, you first need the cloud. And that's where exactly. Sam has the expertise. Exactly. <laughs> I can think of an epitaph for Sam's gravestone. Sam Monicum, he lies the man who met nurses from all over the world. 
<laughs> Did I ever tell you the story about the Catholic nurses? And the, no, I'll stop. <laughs> Shirley, how about you? Silver lining. Um, probably the best, biggest silver lining for us is when the the bike collapsed. The the um, shock absorber collapsed when we we're in um, Canada. And we were stuck on the side of the road. We were travelling with Ken and Carol Duval and um, they went ahead to try and get help and we just stood there and a woman pulled up in a pickup, as they call them there, um, and said, do you realise you're in the middle of bear country? This is probably not the place to be standing on the side of the road. And we said, well, clearly we're not voluntarily standing on the side of the road. The motorcycle, she is broken. Um, and she organised people to come and convert her pickup into a bike carrier and then took us back to 200-something kilometres to the town of Smithers, British Columbia, which we spent 10 days waiting for a part for the bike. And while... It's probably not on the tourist trail. It was a silver lining for us. We spent time there. We met great people there. We met um, Dave Han from Daytona Beach, Florida, who we are still very good friends with and have travelled with him in many different parts of the world in on different times. So it, what started off as a complete disaster with the bike collapsing ended up being a really interesting 10 days. Yeah, but Cherie, who picked us up, uh, you know, they, they took the back um, tailgate off her ute to, to roll the bike up into the back of the ute. And, um, you know, we, we we met the local Harley dealer who lent me a bike to go riding with while I was waiting for the shock absorber to arrive. And Cherie picked wow. us up and took us, um, took us to an Indigenous... Um, uh, totem maker, didn't he? Yeah, yeah and she and, and uh, we took a sightseeing. A took a sightseeing, and, and we went and, and watched this guy make a totem pole and things like that, which you you know, and that's to me is a dead set silver lining. Whenever you're forced to stay somewhere for longer than you had originally planned, is when you get a chance to actually appreciate the local culture, what it's like to actually live there, as opposed to passing through as a tourist and you know you meet the people in the restaurant and you meet the people uh the bike shop maybe but that's kind of it if you stay there and sit and you get a chance to meet so many more people and see what's going on i've always found that to be a great thing um we were stuck in gibraltar uh, and i was making boxes for africa and we met some people that we've now are lifelong friends with. We've known them for a long time. They're from Canada. Well, one of them's from Canada. The other one's from Iran. And we're still friends with them as a couple. And where was it? Um, oh, Ushuaia. We were sitting waiting for a part for a shock. And we met Greg Frazier. And the funny thing about that one was after doing Central America, Europe, and all of Africa, we now are in Ushuaia, Argentina, and we had not met a single other motorcycle traveler, not one. Mm. And this is back, you know, this is back a few years ago. Things have changed a lot, but not a soul. And then we're walking, we saw this bike and it had Montana license plates on it. Wait a minute, our ADGS loaded up with luggage and Montana license plates. Hmm, I wonder where he is. We're walking down the street and here's Greg Frazier. Anybody who knows Greg Frazier, he kind of stands out. He's a big guy, long black hair. Uh, and we just looked at him, walked out to him and said, you're from Montana. <laughs> he double take, what? 
Huh? What? <laughs> yeah, and we had a great time. We, we enjoyed talking with him, and we met a few other people in Ushuaia shortly after that. Uh, if you're there around Christmas, make sure you get to the campground because that's where everybody congregates for a party. We have Christmas, Christmas. in Ushuaia oh, and yeah. New Year's Absolutely. Eve. Let me tell you, oh, yeah. Christmas Eve is one thing at that campground, but New Year's Eve, what? Oh, wow, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we missed Christmas, we around. were too late, but um, New Year's <laughs> we, we managed to enjoy. Yeah, well, if you're there, I mean, this is all part of staying long enough to get the hang of what's going on, what's in town, who's doing what. And um, like Sam was saying, you, you meet people. There's just so much going on that you don't see when you just zip through. So I think it comes back to something we've talked about many, many times, and that is slow down, stop and take a break once in a while at a place that just kind of, yeah, this is kind of nice. Take your time. So whether you're broken down waiting for parts or not, just stop and get get the hang of the place. I think it's we well got- worth doing. We got to meet the post office man in Smithers, British Columbia, and he thought we were actually shipping our bike out of the country in pieces <laughs> because we, <laughs> we took the shock absorber because it had to go back to Olin's. They wanted to see it to work out why it had collapsed. And then we decided the top box was too heavy and we bought a gear sack and we posted the top box home to Australia. And when we, when we left after that, the, I'm sure he thought he'd never see us again. And then I sent home all my touristy stuff. <laughs> he was very friendly to the two Australians who just kept turning up in his post office. Yeah, but Shirley knew the place that well that she was telling tourists where the local ATM was, uh, you know, where to go shopping, which is the best shop. Um, we got to um, not know, but um, I did identify the local prostitute working the streets. <laughs> oh, sorry. You, this is a side story here. You, you found what? And what, what are you looking for? And Brian, you're throwing me for a loop here. No, there was a young lady a young lady who seemed to be very friendly with a lot of the road workers who were spending single nights in the motel that we were staying in. She, she, being there for 10 days, you noticed how often she was there. Sorry. But, but, the, but the thing with the silver lining is you sir, I guess you sort of need two things. One is you don't want to, like, you can't force that. You can't make that happen, but it's your attitude when it does happen. Right. You know, cause, cause surely sure. Brian, you guys could have sat there and moped and been miserable and complained and, you know, wrote to emails back and saying how ticked off you are and haven't been stuck in the middle of nowhere. You know, it's just your attitude. You have to have the right attitude. You do that as well, Jim. I mean, you have moments <laughs> where you just think, if I don't get out of this godforsaken town, I'm going to scream. Yeah, and, oh, that's true. And then you go for a wander and you think, well, it's not so bad. And it could be a lot worse. You know, you could be broken down somewhere where there wasn't a nice motel to stay in and good restaurants to eat in and friendly folk to look after you. Yep. So, um, yeah, there's there usually is a silver lining. You know, as Sam knows, you meet nice people in hospitals and prisons. uh, and you know if the worst comes to the worst then there's always a song that you can sing to yourself and that um, for me it always cheers me up Um, we've got to get out of this place how's that song go Sam? (laughs) I'm not singing it you'll get taken off the air (laughs) I I use the one The Life of Brian oh yes (laughs) yeah that's a good one (laughs) I, I have to agree completely. And I think, Sam, you started out this topic with just really 
setting the tone so perfectly. And I totally agree. I think I'm a person as probably so many of us are, but we have our, our moments and our days. But I, I think I look for silver linings because I, I need to feel better about whatever my bad situation is. So I'm, I'm open to that and I'm looking for something that's either going to make me laugh or give me a great story to share with people later and I can look back on it differently and, and see whatever that silver lining was. I've definitely had, um, you know, problems with bikes on the road, um, you know, a flat tire. It, it, and my story with a flat tire sounds very similar to the one that Shirley shared where there was a truck that pulled over to let me know that this was not the ideal place to have a flat tire because there was a bear just up the road. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Why did you uh, yeah. choose to have a flat tire at that spot? <laughs> I don't know. Poor, poor choices. What right. can I say? I've made more than one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I I really feel like you meet the nicest people. Uh, Most of the time, anybody who's ever stopped, and obviously that's part of who they are, if they're stopping to help, that's maybe their nature. But I've met some fantastic people that way. I've had a lot of great new experiences that I wouldn't have had if I, you know, hadn't been in a situation where I needed help. Um, perfect example for me, of course, is that I had planned to take six to 12 months to ride from South Dakota to Ushuaia. And um, and no, by the way, I, I wasn't there for Christmas. I got there the end of January. So I think I need to go back to Ushuaia and hit this campground for New Year's Definitely. and Christmas. <laughs> Same time, Michelle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, it's a, it's a deal. But uh, yeah, just a couple weeks into my, my planned trip, I had a bike wreck and broke my leg. Um, and that changed my timeline completely. It wasn't something that I had any control over and I was really um, vulnerable, obviously needed help. There was a group of local riders that really stepped up. In fact, one woman took me in, as I've probably shared before more than once, uh, took me in off the street and gave me a place to live for three months until I could get back on the bike and heal and recover from the broken leg. Um so I met all these amazing people, really had some, you know, from friendships that grew um, from, you know, people that were strangers to now I, I fully believe will be lifelong friends because of that experience. Um, but further, I think that changed actually my whole outlook about the rest of the trip. It changed the timeline for me because I didn't have the timing right then to head to Ushuaia. I wasn't going to make it before winter came to Ushuaia at the right time. I actually had to slow down intentionally for another year so that my trip, instead of being six to 12 months, was now going to be 18 to 24 months. And I had, I had the, yeah, I had the choice of going home or no, I decided I was going to take a really windy, zigzaggy, lazy trip and, and just make the most of it. And that changed everything because it was out of my control. And yeah, I, I really feel like that without question was the biggest silver lining for me. Three months staying at someone's house says as much about you as it does about them. Because <laughs> if they could stand you for three months, you got to be a pretty nice person, Michelle. Well, thank you. I hadn't thought of it like that before. <laughs> You'd have to be. Otherwise <laughs> you get the boot. Sure. Well, surely, what, what is it? It's, it's, it's three days? Is it the same as a bucket three of prawns? Days. Like a bucket of prawns in the sun. Yeah, that's a long time though but seriously though three months that's that is a long time to put up with somebody that you have no idea what they're like and they just show yeah. up and someone I with really, a broken leg so yeah. it's not like she's racing around helping you with the vacuuming uh, yeah no, that's right that's right 
<laughs> I really like the way you wrote about this in your book, Michelle, because um, what we're talking about here is that, yeah, it's a juggle. Um, you could be um, invading, but the way you describe it in your book, that's that's really neat. People should read your book for the full story. Thank you, Sam. Which that's very kind. Uh, the Butterfly Route. Mm-hmm. And they can get that on your website. Of course, we have a link. We always have a link to you, to your website, to everybody's website in the show notes on the website, on our website, adventureriderradio.com. So you can go there and look for that link and uh, and get the book if you haven't read it. I just wanted Thanks, to add Jim. something to all of this discussion. Um, the corollary, um, a relative who shall remain nameless and unidentified at age 20 went to Europe, was about a week in, just just traveling around doing the backpacking thing. He's about a week in, got really sick. As soon as he was able to, he got on a plane and went home. He was supposed to be there for three months. He's never been back. He's never left home since. He's now 40. To me, part of silver linings is concentrating on what's possible instead of what's no longer possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a great attitude. Yeah. It's like we've talked about with border crossings. They can be horrible or they can be really interesting. It's up (laughs) to you to make that decision to say, I'm going to suffer through this. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to make it work and I'm going to have fun and I'm going to have a story at the end of it. Horribly interesting. So, yeah, otherwise you get frustrated. So, it is all about attitude. Gosh, um, listen to us. To go along <laughs> with, we, sorry, we should live by these rules ourselves. Really, <laughs> <laughs> what a good idea. <laughs> oh, this takes me back to last month when we were talking about riding at night. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who was? Nah. <laughs> so going Who along with, with with silver linings, sort of going along with it is is um, those instances of, of of what a small world it is. And I'll just I remember one time the, the one just pops into my head right now is is um, we have a we had a shop um, when we were in tourism uh, on a little island in British Columbia. And anyway, and there's this person that comes in. And to be honest, because I'm sure she's not going to hear this, the guy was a, a bit of a moron, really. <laughs> there, there's this guy who comes in, he's just one of those people who he's he's aggravating, he's a know-it-all, and he's one of the, one of these types. Anyway, so I'm sort of dealing with him, and his his wife comes in and sort of stands there, and I don't see her face. He's, she walked in and sort of faced away, and she's talking with him, and I'm sort of you know, like, you know, stand there rolling my eyes sort of thing, right? Because I'm having to deal with this guy. And then all of a sudden, the woman turns around and looks right at me, and it was that moment of, of recognition. This is a childhood friend of mine um, from high school. And and she was a very good friend of mine. And it was like, she looks at me and it's that instant recognition. It was, it was just amazing to have that. Because we hadn't talked to each other since, since, um, well, not far out of high school. And, and wow. both of us, like, we, we're 5,000 kilometers. We couldn't be farther from where we grew up. So it was a, a really neat sort of momentary reunion, I guess. I still think her husband was a, was a, a moron. But anyway, she ended up getting divorced <laughs> from him afterwards. So it doesn't really matter. <laughs> but, but that was, she agrees that with you, obviously. <laughs> exactly. How about you guys? Have you had these these sort of encounters? I just have one that popped into my head that still just blows my mind that it happened. I was uh, staying at a hostel in Salento, Colombia. And for those that don't know, Salento is in um, 
the mountains of Colombia, and it is known specifically for these wax palm trees that are 200 foot tall palm trees with the tiny little normal clump of a palm tree on top, but they're really gangly, super long, um, strange trees. They look like they come out of a Dr. Seuss book. Um, and I had gone there to hike up to into the hills to see these wax palms. And I came back down to the hostel that afternoon, was sitting in the lounge of the hostel, typing away on my uh, computer, just doing a journal or whatever. And there was another woman in the lounge as well. She was sitting across the room and she had dark hair and she's working silently on her computer. And as you do in so many places, especially in hostels, you you don't assume that anybody speaks the same language as you. So I don't know where where in the world she's even from. But after about 20 or 30 minutes, she makes a call on her computer. And I was surprised that she was speaking English. And I thought, oh, wow, that sounds American even. So what a small world. And I'm trying not to eavesdrop, but she starts talking. (laughs) But apparently I was. I wasn't doing a good job of not eavesdropping. Um, So she's talking to someone on the other end of the phone and she starts talking about the rally. Well, that makes my ears perk up because I'm from Sturgis. And I think of the Sturgis rally and rallies in general with motorcycles. So I'm listening even more when I'm not supposed to be. And finally, I hear her mention the town named Spearfish. And Spearfish, if it's the same town that I'm thinking of, is 12 miles from Sturgis. And that's where I went to university. So she goes on and on. She's having a lengthy conversation, which, of course, I'm, I'm hanging on every word at this point. So it's really, really rude. Um, but she hangs up and I say to her, I, I'm so sorry, but I just have to ask. I couldn't help but hear you mentioned Spearfish. And she goes, oh, yeah, it's a town where I'm from. And I said, Spearfish, South Dakota. And you should have seen her face, her jaw <laughs> dropped. She's like, how have you heard of Spearfish, South Dakota? And I said, well, because I'm from Sturgis. So we were born 12 miles apart, both South Dakota girls. And we were two, the only two women sitting in this small hostel in the mountains of Columbia. It was amazing. Awesome. Nice. Awesome. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> That's and really, we've been to Salento. It is it's a beautiful lovely. place. It's yeah. a really nice little town. Yeah. I'm oh. just writing this down. Make sure it goes on my list of to visit. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You mean South Dakota? Yes, yeah. Spearfish, South Dakota. <laughs> what about Steve Barnett? Sure. I mean, we met- yeah, we met um, a guy in Panama, Panama City, who we had drinks with one night and dinner, very friendly fella. And um, he didn't tell us he was travelling. He knew we were travelling, of course, and we said our farewells. And four months later we were in the Yukon and we were at a petrol station and we're looking around this whole bunch of bikes and I said to Brian, that bike's got Panama number plates. Couldn't possibly be Steve Barnett. I mean, there's lots of people who ride motorbikes in Panama and out of the shop walks Steve Barnett. Wow. <laughs> so uh, we had you know, lots of shrieking and hugs and um, he has since come to Australia and stayed with us and we met him through Ken and Carol Duval. He left our place and rode to Queensland to stay with Ken and Carol Duval. Oh, nice. It's a nice one. And, we, and Brian bought one of his bikes. I, I bought the bike he travelled around Australia. It's in my garage right now, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, is, it is a very small world we live in and what a wonderful thing that is. Here, here. 
Sometimes the connections don't get made at the time, though, for, for, for me anyway. And there was one instance that I was thinking about. Um, we met a couple of guys, um, Swedish guys, up in um, the Pyrenees on the border between Spain and France. And we got talking to them because they were riding um, adventure-type motorcycles, and we just happened to park near them. And so you talk to each other, don't you? And um, it, it wasn't – at the time – we had no idea, but we have scores and scores of friends in common. But it, it, during the conversation, it just never connect, clicked. It was only after um, when we started looking each other up that we suddenly realized, oh, you know such and such. Oh, you know them. Oh, yeah, we rode with them. And, and so it went on. It was really, really strange. But I think probably the weirdest one for us was uh, when we were waiting for um, the ferry in um, Patagonia. Um, to get across the Straits of Magellan into Terra del Fuego. I mean, it's a fairly bleak spot, isn't it? And you guys have been there, Primera mm. Angostura. Yeah. Um, and you wait a long time for that ferry. And Birgit got talking to a really young girl um, whose family were waiting for the ferry. And it turned out that this girl went to a school not far away and her teacher was a friend of Birgit's parents. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. How about you, Grant? Well, I was thinking about that, and on our travels, like I said, we our first person we met, traveler, was Greg Frazier, and then we met a few others in Ushuaia at, at the parties, um, and we've made friends with them since, but no family or people we should know or know of in the area, no neighbors, et cetera, but we have met so many people at various events that we've met at various HU events. Um, Heike and Filippo are a, kind of a classic one to us that always stand out. We ran an event in Spain, the Hum, and they were both riding separately. They, and they, they kind of met, started chatting with each other. And uh, that was okay. And then they met again at the next same event next year. And then we, Susan and I both noticed, Heike and Filippo are spending a lot of time chatting, aren't they? Yep, they are. Hmm, interesting. And the next time we met them was in Australia at the meeting in Perth. And we saw the two of them walking towards us together and discovered that they were on a round-the-world trip, had gotten married, and <laughs> were here in Australia. <laughs> and on their, on their webpage, they said, thanks to Grant and Susan for introducing us at their nature nice. event. <laughs> nice. So that was really cool. And, they, and to top it all off, they now run the Switzerland meeting. Wow. Very cool. Right. Go on, yeah. So the Horizons Unlimited website needs to have a new tab, doesn't it? Connections, <laughs> what we has made. Connections made. Yes, that, that would be neat, actually. Yeah. yeah. You want to, you want to be careful, idea. Grant. You might get um, uh, a Guernsey in a, a divorce suit, too, at some stage, mate. <laughs> 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 no chance. No chance. <laughs> no, we, we do know of several other people, couples, that have met at an HU event and gotten married later. It's, it's really quite cool. Have any That's got really divorced sweet. because of going to the event? Um, I know some who have gotten divorced because they went traveling together and they shouldn't have. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I can understand that. that. Yeah. Or went yes. traveling apart. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the mistakes that we see couples make all the time is they say, let's go on a around the world trip. And, you know, it's kind of like these cartoon things. There's this little bulb with a picture above their heads, right? And he's seeing twisty roads and she's seeing museums. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is not going to work because unless they really discuss 
what they want, what they expect, what a travel around the world means to them, what pace they're going to do and when are they going to stop and all the rest of it. Unless they've really got that worked out in advance and done some traveling together in advance, they're going to get partway around and find out that they do not have the same idea at all. And unless she finds museums, at, unless they can find museums at the bottom of those twisty roads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that could be a weekend or, or a week or, or a month trip too, as well. It could be very frustrating. Yeah. Always, yep, uh, it can. So I think people need to really talk about what does this trip mean? What do I see? What does it look like to me? You know, describe a day, describe a week. How many miles are we going to do in a day? And what, how many times are we going to stop? And are we going to eat out all the time? Are we going to camp all the time? Are we going to do a bit of both? Are we going to see the museums and the local attractions? Are we going to go on tours while we're on the trip? How does it look? You know, I think that's something that people really miss a lot and they really need to talk about. Hang on, how, how come we've got into relationship counseling? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I should mention that we have run um, one of the talks that we've done at a number of events is how to convince your significant other to go traveling with you. <laughs> and you could also introduce speed dating at Horizons Unlimited. Oh, there's an idea. <laughs> that would be fun. There's another tab for the website, yeah. Single. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to help you with that redesign. Right? Okay. <laughs> We had, we had an, um, an instance, well, I had, um, I think I've told part of this story before, but um, when I made, on, on the first year of the big trip, made it down into Namibia and I had the um, 17 bone fracture accident. Um, and, if, you know, just going through all of the procedure and in and out of hospital and having the bones broken and reset and all of this sort of stuff. And yeah, Catholic nurses were involved. Um, eventually, I was, <laughs> I was thrown out of, of the hospital, literally, because, you know, I was well enough to be out. And all of a sudden, here I am. I haven't got my motorcycle. I haven't got most of my gear. Um, they're all um, wrecked somewhere else in, in the country. And I'm standing on the street and I have no idea where to go. Um, I don't even have a guidebook. Um, I have almost no money left because during the weeks in hospital, of course, I've been spending that, not been able to get to a bank or anything like that. And I feel incredibly alone. And I managed to, to find a bank, um, don't even have a street map, um, find a bank, get a traveler's check changed. And as I came out of the bank, um, I had one of the first ever attempts of being mugged. And that just made me feel even more vulnerable and even lower. Um, but here's a combination of meeting somebody and silver lining. Just as I was feeling at my lowest point, my most vulnerable, down the road towards me came Mike and Sally, who I traveled through Egypt, Sudan, and Ethiopia with. And the timing could not have been better. And they weren't supposed to be in that part of Africa. And I had never planned to go to Namibia. Um, I was heading straight from Zimbabwe down in South Africa originally. So what a perfect timing that was. Silver lining and the tingle factor of linking up with friends in an odd place. Mm, yeah, life-saving. Wow. That's that's great. We we got an email from Dan Collins. You guys know Dan Collins. He's the owner of Fresh Tracks, our sponsor for, for the show. And he was saying that he, he's planning a ride. He mentioned about um, going to visit a place that Shirley had mentioned. Shirley, do you want to tell that? Because I can't pronounce the town. Uh, my French is absolutely crap too. So it's um, Orador-sur-Glane, but it's also known as the Village of the Martyrs. 
And we came across it by accident. Um, I wanted to go to a porcelain factory and uh, at the end of Brian's Twisty Roads was not a porcelain factory. So um, That was well played. <laughs> <laughs> we were looking uh, just through local information and discovered this village that during the Second World War the village was attacked by the Germans and everyone bar one little boy and I think one woman survived. Everyone else was killed. And uh, when Charles de Gaulle heard about it and saw it, uh, saw the devastation of this village, it, not only was everyone killed, the village was um, razed. And, um, yeah, it's a really hideous story. Um, he said that this village will never be changed. We must never forget what happened. So they've constructed a new village near the ruins, and you go into you you go into a museum and go up a um, a pathway, and you come into what was a beautiful village and is now a burnt wreck of a town from the from the Second World War. And there's things like the doctor was visiting a house; um, he was murdered in the house, and his car was set on fire, and his burnt out car is still next to the house. It, um, it's bicycles leaning up against the fence. Yeah, it's it's it's, uh, it's a very moving place, and um, yeah, it, we found it one of the most interesting places we visited when we were in France. And um, Dan obviously thought it was worth worth a visit as well. Yeah, because he he said he when you when you described it on one of the shows, I remember you describing it. Uh, he put a pin on the map and figured he would visit that uh, one day when he's nearby. So that's what he's going to do. He's headed off. So his suggestion was, um, how about um, everyone give a, an inspirational place that they discovered that's worth visiting when passing. This is kind of giving away secrets too, isn't it? <laughs> In some cases, um, but um, have you guys had that? You know, you you come across an incredible place that. Um, that uh, maybe it's out of the way, maybe it's slightly off the main track, um, or you've ended up in by accident that you've discovered. I'm this. resting on my I'm resting on my laurels, Jim. You mean on on, on that that town? That, <laughs> on that one, I'm done. Or, or a door, how do you say it again? You, you have a bit of an accent sound there. That's really good. I like that. I don't know if it's good or not, but I like no, it's it. Not good. It's not good. <laughs> how about you, Sam? Dan, what a task you've set us, but um, it's a super idea. And I sat and I thought about this for ages. And trying to choose one for every single continent, that is really difficult because there are so many places. But um, what I ended up doing was um, I, I just picked the first place that pops into my mind for each of, of the continents. So the first one I chose um, was Europe. And there's um, a town in Sardinia in, in the mountains called Orgosolo. And it's a, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And it's a small hill, hillside village whose um, occupancy were, were such feisty characters, they even once ran off Italy's army. The whole village is a political statement um, in that it has 150 murals on the walls. I mean, and these murals are huge, so wall size, um, and each depicts um, mountain life or railing against what is seen as political injustice. So it's an absolutely fascinating place. Um, so I would strongly recommend that as a go. Um, Africa, I'd like you to, to stop off at a place in Uganda called Lake Bunyoni. It's um, in southwest Uganda, um, close to the border with Rwanda. And the, the name of this place um, translates of, of place of many little birds. 
And it's said to be the, uh, the second deepest lake in Africa. And the, the whole area is absolutely lush. It's quite beautiful. A um, bunch of islands out in the middle of the lake. The hillsides are, are all terraced, um, mud hut villages. And this is where I had the, um, the episode, the experience with the um, Ugandan maize millet beer, um, which some listeners may remember. And if you read my book, Into Africa, then you'll know the story very well. And that most of the transport on this lake is um, by dugout canoe and you you just have the sensation that you are stepping back in time and you're as you're sort of paddling slowly across this lake life slows down and you really soak up the world around you it's um it's a, a drop dead gorgeous spot australia god this was hard um noosa everglades and these are in southeast Queensland, near the town of Noosa Head. Um, about 60% of, 60, 65% of Noosa Everglades is a national park. And you can find more than 40% of Australia's bird species there. So it's, um, the, the air is just full of the sound of birdsong. Um, the waters there are just completely mirror-like and the only access to it really is, is by boat. So you can um, paddle, kayak, canoe um, your way up through the Everglades and it's just total peace and surrounded by nature at its best. And when I was there, there was almost nobody there. I don't know whether it's got any busier now, but um, yeah, out of season is probably the best like so many places like this. So the Noosa Everglades in Australia. I hope that fits in, um, Brian and Shirley. Does that make sense for you guys too? Uh, yeah, I reckon uh, that's a lovely little spot. And um, Yes, you're right, Sam. That's probably the best. And where else in the world, mate? Okay. Um, Asia. The Pahentian Islands off the northeast coast of Malaysia. Um, pristine, soft, white sand beaches, amazing sunrises, tropical fish that you can snorkel out and see. Um, April and June is the best time to go here because it's not peak season and the waters are absolutely clear. So if you're into snorkeling or scuba diving, it's great. And it's it's not as cheap being there as... Um, traveling on um, mainland um, Malaysia, but actually it's it's worth the extra bob or two and it's not um, that much more um, ridiculously expensive. I, I've, I've just got such good memories of this. I stayed in a um, uh, a back in a backpackers hostel on the mainland, about ten k's away from the port, and this place was called Mummy's High Tech Hostel. And what a mad place for a, um, a, a, a you know a hostel to be called. But Mummy was a real character, and she kept passport photographs. Now she's she's getting on a bit. She kept passport photographs of all of the young backpacker men that she'd conquered when they'd stayed in her <laughs> hostel. And her head of staff was a part-time helper for the Thai Mafia. So you can just imagine the stories that um, surrounded this place. But um, back to the islands, they are beautiful and um, they are incredibly laid back. It's the sort of place that anybody on a long trip needs to go to just to chill out. And I think this is sort of a theme with um, the places that I've picked. Um, good chill-out spots. So South America... Oh, there are so many places again, but this one stopped in um, into my mind because of its um, the happy memories, but also because of the peace of it. This is a town called Ambalema, and it's in Colombia, and it's on the Magdalena River. Uh, it's just a great spot to to stop and to rest up for a few days to do ride outs from. Tiny town, only about eight thousand people. 
Um, ancient adobe terracotta roof buildings. Um, there are some new buildings too, of course. Um, there's a really good fun square in this place where people promenade of an evening. Um, so you get a real taste of, of local culture in small town. And this is um, tobacco and uh, coffee territory. So the hillsides are, are terraced with coffee plantations. And this is one of those parts of Colombia where the soil is um, rich volcanic. And so it's, it's just incredibly lush. I think for me, one of the highlights about this place was um, going into the town on a Friday and Saturday night and um, the local um, guys from the farms um, hammer into town on their horses. And these are mostly quite tiny um, horses, but these these horses are just so beautifully trained and they almost dance um, routines around uh, the town square when they're not racing around with um, sparks flying from their from their steel hooves. Um, it just, yeah, it's a magic spot to stop. And it's one that I've never heard anybody else talk about. North America? Cool. I spent about an hour thinking about this because not only are there places that I can highly recommend to go to, but there are so many places that I want to go to. And I want to go to Jackson Hole in um, Wyoming. I still haven't been to the Glacier National Park. And yeah, I still haven't been to Yellowstone. There's the Estes um, Park in, in Colorado. Um, the Roaring 40 Fork um, Motor Nature Trail in the Great Smoky Mountains. Um, I want to go hike down to Supai in Arizona near the Grand Canyon. It's a 20-mile round-trip hike, but um, the photographs that I've seen and the stories that I've heard just been fantastic. And I still haven't been to Horseshoe Bend in Arizona. But anyway, those are the places I would like to go to still. Um, if I had to pick one place um, in the United States... What a huge continent, what a huge country, um, really hard to do. Um, my mind settled um, on one great spot for somebody heading to the USA for the first time, and that would be um, Matewan in Virginia. Too many people ride through West Virginia um, on the way to something else. And I think that's sad because I think that this um, state has got so much history going on and so many great roads um, that can be ridden. Um, it's worth taking the time out for. The Maitland itself, it's um, a small town, but it's a, a focal point and insight straight into feudal USA. And of course, I'm talking about the Hatfield-McCoy feud, which was the longest running feud um, in US history. And it ran from 1863 until 1891. Um, what happened there takes you deep into the DNA of this country and into the South in particular, but it also puts the ancestry of the sorts of people that ended up in the United States. Um, just It just explains what was happening with those people, why they ended up in the United States, the political countries, conditions in their own countries of origin and so on. But um, yeah, fantastic roads to be ridden. And I like the town too. It's a small town um, with lots of older buildings and it's it's sleepy. But it's interesting because there are all sorts of odd things that are there. For example, um, there's um, a fairly powerful ri um, river at certain times of year and they've had to build a wall to protect the, the town. And this wall is made out of concrete, but it's full of concrete murals about the Hatfield-McCoy um, feud and the history of the town and so on. And my recommendation is um, for people to get, try and get there in April if they can. And if they're on a dual sport type bike, 
then head to the Stolen Pig Rally. Um, the, it's called the Stolen Pig Rally because the Hatfield-McCoy feud was actually all about um, a stolen pig. And back in the late 80s, um, a pig being stolen from um, a family such as either the Hatfields or the McCoys would have been really, really important. You know, that pig was um, the difference between survival and not um, during the winter months. But anyway, um, this rally is run by um, Don and Kathy McCoy, who are um, just super people. Don is a McCoy and he's the local town historian. And Kathy his wife is a Hatfield. So there's a really nice quirky connection there between the two. Um, That's interesting. But um, it's it's yeah. it's just a great spot. Well worth going to visit because it is just so full of quirks. But like I said, you know, the United States, North America, Mexico, Canada, how on earth do you pick one spot? That was really hard. I struggled. Uh, the one thing I didn't mention in here and the reason that you just gave one from every continent was that um, in Dan's uh, email, he said if, if they could come up with one for every continent, even better, Antarctica accepted. I thought it was going to be one each of you. I didn't realize that you were going to go through the work. Sam, that was very impressive. That's a lot of places and a lot of thought process you put into that. I spent a lot of time thinking about this because it just it just kept on reminding me how amazing this world of ours is and what a fantastic thing motorcycle travel is because it gives us a chance to get out and visit all of these places that um, either by just sheer chance or because we've planned them because we've you know we, we've researched and we've discovered um, yeah and I'm looking forward to hearing what everybody else has got to say because yeah Share ideas, please. Very impressive, Sam. I, I, I appreciate that very much. The only question I had with your story was, I was just wondering, is your photograph on that hostile wall that you told us about? Oh, that's what I wanted to know. <laughs> Shows I'm we saying zoomed nothing. In on. It might be on the dartboard. Say that again. I'm saying nothing, but it might be on the dartboard. <laughs> Shirley, any response to that? Oh, no, I just don't believe him, really. <laughs> <laughs> he glossed over it way too quickly when he was telling that story. Yeah, he did. He did. He did. <laughs> Anyone else? Well, I've got a few things to talk about. Um, I think this got me thinking about something that we created two, three years ago now on Horizons Unlimited, is it? it's um, called Destinations. And that's exactly what Destinations is all about, is all these really cool places that people have been to, you can put them into the destination system and it's a map. You can click on a country, you can click on a local area and see what all the different really cool places are that people like. And there's some really interesting spots in there now. Um, and it's all about Where's a good place to go specifically for motorcycle travelers? And you can also go through and click on all the places you like and add them to your own list and it'll output GPS coordinates for all of them. Grant, is there any chance that Sam cheated and just went there and got all his information from the website? <laughs> Actually, Grant's just made me feel very, very guilty because I did promise about a year and a half ago that I would put up some destinations. Yeah, I remember and that. That's never true. got to yes. it. I remember I'm that. so sorry, Grant. Um, it, it's my turn to feel red-faced now. Okay, that's good. I'll make you feel more red-faced. There's lots of places in there, but there's a lot of places that aren't. And it'd be really I'll get cool to, to it. get more. 
So everybody get to it, get some stuff in there. Um, I think for me, I didn't go into all the detail that Sam did. <laughs> that was just an amazing word picture you painted there, Sam. I love it. Um, but I went through a few things and just very briefly, some of the places that I particularly liked. And then Susan immediately said, oh, Phillip Island. You must go to Phillip Island. Yep. 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 Now, Shirley, why? The penguins. <sighs> yes. This <laughs> <laughs> is all about the animals. Yeah, you can go and sit on the seats and watch the fairy penguins come in. And um, next time you come to Australia, we must go to the seal colony at Phillip Island. Right. Which they've now got a new lookout for the seals at Nobbies. And some people go there to watch the motorcycle racing. Yes, that too. <laughs> We've done both. And it's, it's a fantastic place. Definitely worth going to. Um, and he said Antarctica accepted. Well, hey, Antarctica is absolutely on your destinations list. It's an amazing place. Yeah, and it can possibly be. go there. you got to yeah, go. Has anybody else cold. been there? Yes, we've been yeah, there and it's, yeah. um, there's plenty of places we've been to that I kind of have a, a small desire to go back to, but I would go back to Antarctica in a heartbeat. Yes. I have swim out there and uh, I don't know whether I'll have another swim out there. It's bloody cold. <laughs> oh, it is so cold. It's been. <laughs> well, no, there's a hot spring. There's actually no, a hot spring. No, no. no, it was not spring. <laughs> oh, we had a hot spring. <laughs> But it is, it is one of the most special places ever. Yeah. You can just sit there and watch the, the penguins and just sit and watch the scenery. Just going from the boat to the, uh, to the land, going past all these amazing floating icebergs around you and, and the shapes and what's going on. It's just fantastic. I think if you're anywhere near the place, it's a must do. It's one of our top 10, easily top 10, if not top five places in the world that we've been we say, yeah, yep, yeah, fantastic. Agree 100%. So come on, Dan, you've got to go down to Antarctica and do that, mate, and have a swim out there. There you go. Yep. And take Absolutely. your bike. <laughs> well, that's been done once, but it can't yeah, be done once. Yeah. 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 You know what that's frustrated right. us? We were on the boat and we t were t ended up talking to the captain at one point because we're wearing our motorcycle jackets. And he says, motorcycle, what are you doing? He says, well, we're riding our motorcycle around the world. Um, blah, blah, blah. We talked talking and he says, well, why didn't you tell me beforehand? I could have loaded your bike into a, into a, what do you call it? A Zodiac and we, you could have ridden it on, on Antarctica. Yeah. That wow. Been now neat. you tell us, turn the bike, turn the boat around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then you could be the one that brought some strange disease on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Be it on your yes. I would have been careful. The bike would have been right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, we didn't know about those things at that time. But so far as I know, two people have done it, and that's it. So, yeah, and it will yeah, never be done again, from what I understand. That's right. I stopped it, didn't I, Jim? Uh, yes. Right? Oh, I, I didn't it's, hear that. Is there? There's an official no-go now for for motorcycles. Yes. I mean, yeah, so, yeah. Yep. Well, uh, the only vehicles down there are vehicles that are on the um, the, the stations, the, the government-run stations. And when you go down on the trips that like Grant and Susan did and we did, you have a zodiac and you have big black boots that you wear when you walk on the ice, which are disinfected before you get into the Zodiac and disinfected when you get back onto the ship. So there's no, no contamination. And um, to be somewhere without the noise of motorbikes. <laughs> yeah. Just saying. Yeah, 
Silence. Yes. Yeah. Well, I shouldn't say that. It's not silent, is it? <laughs> I've never been there. I didn't, I didn't realize they did the disinfecting thing and everything. Uh, that, that's oh, interesting. Yeah. 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 But it's it's worth doing. But anyway, to move on, um, Australia, Phillip Island, yes. And you got to do Uluru. Don't climb it, oh, yes. but you got to go there. Um, and a lot of people miss the Olgas. And I thought that was absolutely magical. I walked yeah. around there for a couple of days. And it was just Yeah, me too. I, I loved it there too. They're, they're yeah. fantastic shape, aren't they? And the colors, just oh. beautiful. Yeah, everything about it was just magic. Um, where else? Oh, Sani Pass in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Kruger. Sani Pass is a great ride. Uh, Kruger National Park is amazing. It's well worth doing. That was one of Susan's favorite places. She was less, a little less sanguine about uh, Sandy Pass, but it's a great ride. <laughs> really cool to do. <laughs> yeah, I get, I'm, I'm with Susan on that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you are. I really um, liked it. Birgit got off a couple of times. Yeah. Right. Yes. A lot of people get pretty freaked out on that one, but it's okay. We did it. It was, it was all right. Um, but other places in Africa... Sausage and Atosha. Atosha National Park yeah. is amazing. You can't ride your bike in the park, but uh, we just rented a van and slept in the van, and that was great. Well worth doing. The animals are just there, and they're quiet, and they're relaxed, and it's not crowded, and it's not busy, and you can go at your own pace. You can stop where you want, whenever you want, and yeah, it was just great. Remember, we were sitting at a uh, water hole watching the animals and it was all cool. And then a safari vehicle came zooming in. And I mean, literally zooming in with a whole bunch of tourists and they were hanging out the windows and taking pictures. But of course, as soon as they started, they they could be heard. The animals kind of quietly disappeared into the woods. And as soon as they left, the animals came back out again. We just sat there and watched quietly. Didn't bother anybody, just kept it quiet and relaxed sat there nibbling on a sandwich and just watched the animals. It was great. So I can we, recommend Atosha for sure. We did one of those um, safari, but a small van, and there was um, a family of mum, dad, and a little boy and us. Mm-hmm. And Brian's beard by the time we got to South Africa was very, very long, and this little boy said to his mother, Mummy, why is Santa on our safari. <laughs> <laughs> and Brian leant, Brian leant forward and said, I'm on holidays. <laughs> Good on you. Oh, oh. Very nice. Very nice. True story. <laughs> They're all true stories, bro. Yeah. Um, but a little tip on doing a safari for your first time. We went on a safari with another couple in Serengeti. And that was really good because with just another couple, there's only four of us sharing the costs. But we learned so much because it wasn't a 10-person one where the safari guide is basically trying to keep keep control of the, of the crowd. But we could ask questions. He told us how to spot the animals, where to look for them, what their habits were, all kinds of stuff. And then when we got to Atosha, we could do it on our own and felt pretty comfortable about what was going on and what the animals were, where they were, when to expect to see them. It was really good that way. So that's Smaller is better on things like that and oh, trips to yeah. Antarctica. Smaller ships rather than Smaller. big ships. Yes, yes that's right. Yes. Yep. We had a small we, ship for Antarctica. Yes, yeah, but we, also in South Africa, we did a, a little tour like that and we had a bray, like barbecue, um, mm-hmm. in uh, in the um, Shishlui National Park, which you mentioned. I actually had to cross it off because that's one of my favourite places too. Sausage uh, 
Chusha yeah, Sway, yeah, yeah, however you pronounce yeah. it. Yeah. That's right. No, it's fantastic. It's, and it's not spelt anything like that. No, no. And what's the little town? I can't think of the name of the little town, Grant, that's um, oh. near there. And we stayed there. And you had to be careful walking home from uh, to our little um, B&B we were staying at because um, the hippos wander the streets at night and yes. uh, they'd, actually, they'd actually killed a bloke in his front yard. So you, you had to really be careful um, walking back. But a beautiful little spot. Brian, how do you be careful with hippos? Well, <laughs> well you, listen, you, you listen to if you, if you hear grunting and groaning or, or – Crunching of um, bones. bones or asphalt or whatever, <laughs> you just got to you got to watch yourself. And um, uh, we met a guy on the street, didn't we? Walking yeah, back, yeah. and it was really dark. And he said, "Don't go down there. There's some hippos uh, coming into town. Go that way." And the, the lady at the guest yeah. house warned us. Warned us, yeah. Uh, that's okay. We were at a campsite in Malawi, I think it was. Uh, well, it wasn't really a campsite. It was a, a lodge and it was expensive and all that. So we said, can we just put our tent up here? And they said, sure, over there, no problem. Yeah, well, then we found out the next day what the noises were during the night. It was the hippos walking right by the tent. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Eating oh, the other thanks, tourists. Guys. Yeah. <laughs> that was a little scary. Anyway, yes, yeah, oh, look up Sausage Flay. It's a fantastic place. It's it's desert, sand, the highest sand dunes yeah. in the world. Um, there, it's absolutely amazing, magical place. I loved it. We spent when days you, there just taking pictures. And- when you were talking about it, Grant, it's got something I want to say about that. Just recently, uh, I think it's Kruger National Park. Um, mm-hmm. The rangers there have been uh, provided with electric motorcycles to do their their patrols. Nice. Yeah. And these electric motorcycles actually have a, a, um, they taken with a solar panel so they can go out and stay and recharge. I don't know how long they take or anything. But um, what a great idea. Um, yeah. And, uh, I mean, a ranger in those national parks ain't like a ranger in the U.S. national parks. It's a very dangerous job. Um, many of them have been um, murdered by poachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they come across them or they've been picked off by poachers with long-range rifles, a whole bit. Um, and there's memorials to the, to the rangers that have been killed by the, the poachers. So it's a dangerous job, and I wish them well, and I think it's a great idea to have these um, now uh, little electric um, uh, trail bikes to, to do their patrols on. Now, do you know who is who organised that? How did that happen? No, I, I don't. I, I just saw a brief uh, thing on it, Grant, but I, it's something worth looking up, I think, as to it's been provided by some organisation. I don't know how much they cost or anything like that. I'm just thinking about the reliability of that electric bike as you're chasing after a poacher being chased by one, you know, and yeah. uh, well, better than a regular motorcycle. Better than yeah. a regular, no, speed wise. Sure. But I mean, as far as um, knowing how much fuel you have and, and uh, you know, because you're, you're limited if you're recharging by the solar panel, I don't know how long it would take. I mean, obviously it depends on everything the battery and the panel, et cetera. But yeah, that, that's, that's an interesting uh, setup mm. anyway. And I, I think the silence of the bikes, Jim, would be very handy for rangers. Oh, yeah, good point. Yeah, that's yes. well, that, that's what it's all poachers. about, so, so they can get in and approach the uh, – get close to the poachers and then call in support, I suppose. They'd be like a, a forward patrol. Right. Which would uh, be interesting, yeah. What else do you have on your list, Grant? Um, well, there's a few other – just just drop a few names just for fun. Queenstown, if you want to go bungee jumping or skiing in the appropriate season, Queenstown's great fun. Uh, if you're crazy enough to go jump bungee jumping, and I guess I qualify. 
and Milford Sound in New Zealand. If you're, since we're talking New Zealand, that's pretty spectacular. Um, if you're into scuba diving, Charmel Shake. Speaking of that, that's kind of a silver lining thing for us. We were in Cairo trying to get a visa to go south through uh, through Ethiopia, and we weren't allowed to do that. So instead of doing that, we went to Sharm El Sheikh and did some scuba diving there. And that was fantastic. The Red Sea is amazing. We've been back several times since. Love it. Um, so, yes, yeah, Sharm El Sheikh and um, another dive location that's one of our top favorites, uh, Bunakan, which is Manado, Indonesia. Spectacular. Um, Tahiti is someplace that hardly anybody even thinks about. And yet when you say Tahiti, it's, oh, Tahiti, magic. Oh, yes. Yes. Well worth going. I always remember going across in a dugout canoe and below me, we could see these huge manta rays just cruising silently, quietly by. It was spectacular. Um, so those, those would be my kind of top memories of really cool places that are worth going to. Um, oh, Lofoten Islands. That was the other one I'd forgotten about. Lofoten Islands. Oh, yeah. Nobody Norway. goes to the Fulton Islands. Well, I thought nobody else does. Obviously, Brian and Shirley are on the same wavelength as I am. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, the Lofotans are great. Well worth going to. It's worth taking the little ferry. Yeah, cool. So those would be my top places that I think everybody should try and get to if they possibly can. And um, put your experiences of the pl- those places and... Any other places that aren't on our destinations list, <clears throat> excuse me, add them to horizonsunlimited.com slash destinations. Add them in. Oh. Help everybody else out and help yourself out for your next trip. Good list, Grant. Anyone else? Well, Grant's stolen a lot of uh, my uh, things. I, I've been I'm crossing sorry them off that. as he's been going through. <laughs> no, I've, I've still got a couple. Um uh, when you talked about Uluru, um, Ears Rock, um, yeah, you don't climb it, but walk around it. Take the time, yes. look around and go into the caves and you see these ancient paintings. And the ancient world of Australia is fascinating and a lot of people just gloss over it. Yep. It's difficult to get there. It's long, it's hot, and, and uh, you pick the wrong time of year, it's full of flies. But by gee, it's worth it. And as as you and uh, Sam said, you know, there's places out there which are just spectacular. But talking of dive sites, you, you pricked my memory when I was diving. I, I did um, a fair bit of diving, and uh, we went over to Truck Lagoon. Uh, a lot of a lot of people, I don't know, would know about Truck, but it's like Japan's. To, um, Melanesia. Melan, uh, Melanesia. Yes. Micronesia. 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 Yeah, Micronesia. It's um, uh, Japan's Pearl Harbor. It's 42 war, war wrecks in there, and the diving is deep, but, boy, it's spectacular. And uh, even Guam, you go to Guam and you can do a dive. Um, uh, they take you out to the Marianas Trench, which is the deepest in the world, and you come out, you dive to about uh, 25 metres and you go into a hole in um, this um, – um, shelf, rock shelf, uh, go down about 10 metres and then shoot out across the Marianas Trench and it's just straight down to nothing and there's huge fish cruising along. Uh, you've really got to watch your gauges because if you drop too low, that's it, you're done. Um, but you've just got to run on your gauges. And it, it, to me, that was spectacular diving. Um, 
uh, in Australia. I, I, I had um, places like Esfahan in Iran, uh, which is the university town, which is just great. And there was a – Shirley, where was that um, uh, ruins we went to where there was a young couple and uh, – Persepolis in Shiraz. Uh, yes, Shiraz thank you. That, that was uh, spectacular. And, you know, it, there's this ancient – world in Iran that uh, not many people get to see. And even <laughs> there's graffiti from the Second World War. I think there was Lieutenant Colonel so-and-so and his wife had, had uh, graffitied this uh, stuff that's 2,000 years old, um, which we saw there. That was To me, that was just uh, a spectacular little place, if you can get there. Um, yeah, anything else, Cheryl? You think of? Well, I'd actually only thought, I thought I'd just rest on my laurels. I didn't think everyone would think of 400 places. They could. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised and impressed too. Yeah, very impressed. I just feel a bit slack. Tikal in Guatemala, that's yeah, fantastic. Yeah, Tikal is, is amazing. We spent um, a couple of days exploring the ruins there. Um, I've just I'd finished. that one. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very different. The things there that you see are just so different to what what we would uh, would normally see in a lifetime in Australia. But then there's things here that people from overseas would come and just be knocked out by. Yeah, um, a little town called Malacca in the Malacca Straits in Malaysia too, which really took my fancy because it's a place where um, religions lived peacefully side by side. There's a place called Harmony, Harmony, Street. Harmony Street and there'll be a – a mosque next to a Jew, Jewish synagogue to a, next to a Roman Catholic church, and everyone got on well. And you think, well, you know. Brian, what you were talking about with Malacca, I was um, writing about Sarajevo the other day, and um, that had exactly the same situation of Jews and Muslims and Christians and uh, everybody living onside each other and respecting each other. Um, and it's been historically that way. And it is still, well, it was that way a few years back when I was there last. And it's just really, really nice to see people respecting yeah. each other, um, swapping stories, laughing together. And you could see that they were of different religions because of the clothes and so on that they were wearing. But it didn't matter two hoots. What mattered was who the individuals were. I really, really found that refreshing. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Michelle, we, we didn't hear yours, did we? No. Um, and I've got mine, I think, when I sat and thought about it, and I really enjoyed actually just kind of going through my mental Rolodex of memories and places that I've been. So thank you for the suggestion and for the topic. Um, one of the places that came to mind, because of course they start at home, so I was thinking of North America, was Coco's Corner. And I really was thinking of motorcycle trips specifically that I've been on because I've had backpacking trips and other other types of travel, but um, going to Coco's Corner and Coco is um, an older Mexican man, for those of you who don't know him, had a little camp set up alongside a road in Baja. And it's sort of a rite of passage for motorcyclists and overland travelers to uh, take the old road out to Coco's place, which is on the Sea of Cortez side of Baja Peninsula in Mexico. And it's this really rugged old rock and sand and gravel road. Um, and I rode out there with my motorcycle when I was headed down to Ushuaia. So I think 2013 or 14. Uh, but since then, I think in the last two years, 
the uh, federal government in Mexico has rebuilt the highway and diverted people and they no longer maintain that road and in fact have closed off part of the road. So Coco's camp is isolated and people don't go see him anymore. And his um, livelihood was made just by people coming out and staying at his place. They'd leave him, you know, a couple of dollars to camp at his camp. And then he had uh, beer that he put in a fridge and ran with solar panels and people would come by and have a couple of beers and leave him a couple of dollars. And that was his livelihood. So from what I've heard, uh, Mexico, the Mexican government is going to move him out closer to the highway and relocate his place so he can have some sort of income again. But I would say that, you know, anybody that's familiar with Coco and his place, it, you know, just be aware of that. Or if you haven't, that that's a really cool place. So keep an eye out for it somewhere south of San Felipe on the Baja Peninsula. Uh, Michelle, that is just such a top tip. He, and he's a really nice guy, isn't he, too? He is. He's a character. He's, for those who don't know him, he's, I think, been a diabetic for a number of years. And he's an amputee, double amputee, so lost both of his legs. And he scoots around on this uh, sort of plywood board with casters um, and then rides a four-wheeler. He's fully capable. He's just this, I mean, vibrant, zesty, feisty old man. And he's, he's a character. I mean, he's, he's, you know, <laughs> as we've all said so many times, you know, travel is really about the people. And, and that's something that came to mind too, when I was thinking of memories and, and, and destinations and Coco's really one of my favorite memories and destinations. So um, if you get the chance, I highly recommend it. Uh, another place that came to mind and again reminds me of a person is La Posta in Argentina. And I've noticed recently that Jorge has been posting on a couple of sites. So he's, I think, accepting visitors. Um, and again, sort of a mecca for world travelers and motorcyclists in particular. He's been welcoming guests into his home. You'll have to Google it or find it, find where he's at in Argentina for yourself. Um, but he's been accepting motorcycle travelers into his home for like the last 30 years and I was lucky enough to meet him and stay at his place on my travels and he's just an incredible guy. Um, so I'd recommend that. I think in um, traveling in Australia, I have not done that by motorcycle. That's on a bucket list, but I have a little bit in New Zealand. So forgive me, Brian and Shirley for going, <laughs> yeah, going to the island <laughs> for my mental Rolodex. But I have to say, I loved the roads riding down the west side of the South Island and would highly recommend that. I, I cannot um, say or, or really overstate how beautiful all of New Zealand is, but the South Island in particular with the West Fjordlands. I remember um, staying in Nelson at a bed and breakfast and then going around to the west side of the of uh, the South Island and coming down to Greymouth and cutting across through a canyon and over a pass towards Christchurch. And the riding is, is just exceptionally beautiful. Um, gosh. Michelle, you've just made me smile big time because Nelson was where Birgit and I first met. You're kidding. Oh, well, I should, I yeah. should remember that from a book, but yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. And that's it's one a, of my favorite a, places. Yeah. It's a lovely part of the world. It is. Back. Yeah. Um, obviously in Asia, I haven't done as much writing as I would, would hope, but because it's fresh in my mind, I'm thinking of Pakistan and I, of course, would, would recommend, 
that uh, Karakoram Highway area and the area between Gulmet and Kujura Pass, uh, staying in some of the villages that we did from uh, Aliabad all the way up to Kunjarab. That was breathtaking for me. And, and so that's forefront in my mind. I would say in Europe, oh my gosh, there are so many beautiful places in Europe and it would be hard to choose. I, I think uh, I have ridden in Iceland, but I have not done my dream trip yet. I would really love to do the ferry hopping route from the northern UK up through um, the Faroe Islands and and all of that and, and uh, take a bike to you know, the Shetland Islands, maybe the Orkneys, then the Faroe Islands and on to Iceland. But I have flown into Iceland and doing that, Iceland is spectacular. And the riding and the, the sights and the scenery in Iceland is, is just incredible. And I remember stopping something that just stood out in my mind from Iceland, pulling over at a dairy farm that was selling ice cream. And they were selling it out of the front of the dairy barn. And this was a little place, uh, I think, called Efstadalar. Uh, Not that I can pronounce much uh, Icelandic words. So hopefully I'm saying that somewhat correctly. But in the front of the dairy barn, they had this little shop. And in the back of the shop, they had a window and you could actually watch the cows come in and walk into a stanchion and the gate close and an automatic feeder. This was all mechanized and automatic with sensors. The cow would walk into the chute, the gate would close and a uh, little bit of oats or food would fall into a pan and a machine would uh, start milking her and you'd actually watch the whole process and then order your ice cream <laughs> from the counter. <laughs> it sounds so, so clinical. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really kind of bizarre. I wasn't expecting that, but Iceland was magical from, you know, the black sand beaches, the rainbows after every storm that came through, uh, the, the little springs and, and natural hot springs that you could find to go soak in all over. And uh, yeah, just, just a beautiful country. So I, I'd recommend that. Um, and in Africa, I think the thing that came to mind, and this was not a motorcycle tour, I actually uh, took a tour from Arusha out and it was a safari trip, um, but from Arusha, Tanzania out to the Serengeti, but also went to the Ngoro Ngoro Crater. And there's a lodge up on top. I think there's actually a few, but I stayed at the Ngoro Ngoro Sopa Lodge and watched the sunset from the rim of the crater. You could actually look down into the crater as the sun was setting and um, had a cocktail in my hand and, and could see thousands of feet below and hundreds of miles into the distance and watch this hazy sunset with every um, imaginable shade of orange and lavender. It was just this breathtaking experience. So, Michelle, um, stop now, please. Yeah, I want sorry. To go back in Africa, now. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no. Um, too many beautiful places, aren't there? Yes, indeed, yeah. there are. All the places everyone's been talking about has made me think of a couple of special ones that no one's mentioned, and that's um, traveling through Ireland. Um, going along the um, Antrim coast in Northern Ireland is just spectacular going to the Giants Causeway and, um, yeah. and until you've gone into an Irish pub and sat and listened to locals playing Irish music, you really haven't lived. 
It is just the most amazing experience. And uh, the first time we went to Northern Ireland, it was in the 1990s, and people said to us, oh, are you sure? You know, it's still, you know, it, it wasn't in the middle of the troubles or anything, but it, it could still be a bit of a tricky place. But we had the best time and we stayed in a hotel in Belfast and one of um, one of the people in the hotel one night was asking the barman why they had such a beautiful new hotel in this old area and he said, oh, they blew the other one up. <laughs> so they built a new yeah. one. Um, so there's always tales like that in Ireland. And the other place um, is Uruguay. In mm-hmm. South America, we we crossed over from Buenos Aires, thinking we would just go to Colonia, uh, the little the um, colonial era village on the other side of the River Plate. River Plate, and we and we loved it so much. We decided we'd just keep on going that way rather than taking other routes, and we went all the way through Uruguay. Some of the beaches were just the best in the world, Um, Punta del Este and um, Punta del Diablo and um, the town with the unpronounceable name where they claim to have been the people who started the tango uh, (laughs) is disputed by people in in Argentina. But Uruguay is just – there was hardly any visitors when we were there and it was a real find, a beautiful, beautiful country. This has been a, a, a great little session of mentioning places and, and probably for a lot of people, it'll make them want to get out and travel, which um, <laughs> I, I guess probably few can still. Some are, Michelle has. It'll certainly um, get you thinking because it does, you know, hearing all these places that are spectacular. Somebody needs to make a website where you can put this information in. <laughs> Don't you think? It sounds like a good plan. I'll get right on it. Oh, wait, you have one. It's called horizonsunlimited.com forward slash destinations. That was it, right? That's it. That's right. I like the way you do your URLs. They're, they're very simple. They're easy to remember. We try. <laughs> we know we, we, we're thinking of you, Jim, when we do. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, let's. Um, we, we've run longer because I didn't expect everybody to come with a list, but I mean that was just fantastic. Uh, it was just amazing to sit through and 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 hear all these places with the the descriptions as well. So let's take a quick break, talk about fresh tracks for just a second, and then we're going to have some gear talk afterwards. This episode is supported by Fresh Tracks. That's freshtracks.co.uk. They've been around since the 90s. They work with companies to inspire, motivate, and challenge, build communication skills through team building exercises. They work with uh, companies like um, Comic Relief, Yahoo, Mars, Pfizer, uh, things like that. So it's freshtracks.co.uk. Throw in there that you heard them on Adventure Rider Radio Raw when you're talking with them. Freshtracks.co.uk. Thank you, Fresh Tracks. So um, on to Gear Talk, uh, we, we got a, a message here from a fellow named Daniel Campbell talking about footwear. He, he said he'd like to have a little talk or have, have us have a little talk about footwear. And, and he's, he's wondering, you know, he's curious what people are wearing around the world, but he's more interested in what they're wearing on short rides. And it's probably because he has the guilt coming in because he, he talks about himself wearing leather shoes. Uh, and, um, you know, he says it's, it's pretty dumb when he's riding these leather shoes around in his short trips. So what are you guys wearing for your motorcycle short trips? And then he also said at the end, also just interested in outer clothing in general. But I don't know if we want to get to, because that can go a long, long way. But, I, but, but I'm also curious, what is everybody wearing for footwear? Maybe, maybe, maybe we should say what you wear on a long trip and what you wear um, around in your shorter trips. And I, I really hope this doesn't go the same way the riding at night one went. But <laughs> like, like maybe I should just start I mean, with Brian. You don't wear like, flip-flops, do you? 
<laughs> Not now. Uh, no, in my oh, younger fantastic. days. Um, <laughs> well, oh, flip-flops God. are great, aren't they, Brian? Because they don't leak. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> that's true. And you can, you can share for the edge of them really easily, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> um, look, as a kid, God, I used to wear gym boots, would you believe, uh, on my little bikes. But now uh, I wear – uh, my main boots, which are pretty old now, a bit less ten years old, they're like a cross between a motocross boot and a road riding boot. Um, full length. When I say full length, you know, up, up, up your shin with uh, shin protection, ankle protection, and they've got two clips at the bottom and Velcro at the top. They are still waterproof after ten years. And I'm um, oh, wow. just trying to think that they're, they're not an expensive brand of boot at all. Um, I should go and grab me out of the cupboard and have a look. I've got those, and I do have a, a set of shorty um, spitty boots, which are waterproof, which are proper riding boots. They're the ankle-length ones. I'll wear those if it's a particularly hot day, but I've got to say I still prefer prefer wearing my, um, my full-length boots. Uh, as a younger guy um, – uh, when I first started riding, we all had basically ex-army flying boots, would you believe, back in the 70s, um, which were useless, absolutely useless. Uh, they'd be all right if you were flying a plane, but um, when they got wet, they got heavy and uh, they weren't uh, waterproof in any way, shape or form, and water used to drip down the, t- the front of them anyway, inside them anyway. Um, and I actually – there was a little company in um, – Bruns, uh, Fitzroy, Brunswick Street Fitzroy in Melbourne called Middle Shoes. Uh, two little Italian guys made made to measure motorcycle boots for the police down here. And um, I had a pair of those made for me. They were beautifully made leather boots. They would bring you in and they'd sit you down. They'd get a piece of cardboard out and uh, trace your foot. And you'd have to go back for three fittings to make sure that they were perfect and um, I wore them for years and years and years. They were a fantastic, beautiful pair of um, leather, full-length leather uh, boots. But in those days, there was no um, protection inside, like shin protection and all the rest of it. And uh, one of our dear friends, um, Bert in, um, from Germany, he had a very bad accident off his KTM and shattered his shin, and he will never wear anything but full-length um boots on his uh, when he's riding and i've got to say um my boots are i I wore them yesterday and it was 22 23 degrees here and i would much prefer to wear my full-length boots whenever i can but for shorter trips uh every now and then i'll put on the um the little shorty spitties which are okay so that's what i wear surely how about you on the back what are you wearing um, I have a pair of the most wonderful Italian riding boots. Oh, I had a pair, and this goes to why you need to wear proper boots and not um, little leather shoes, Daniel. Um, I had a really nice pair of Italian riding boots and they came up to my shins and they've got ankle protection and really good sturdy soles, and we had a tumble um, at, at reasonable speed on a wet road and I slid and the soles of my boots came apart from the boot. But by the time I'd stopped, there was 
the damage was to my boots and not to my feet. So you should always wear, I know this, I've got my mother's hat on, you should always wear good shoes when you're on a motorbike. But um, I, if, if it's really, really hot and we're just going for a short ride around here, I'll wear, they're called Blundstones, they're work boots. And they have, they come up over your ankles and they're very sturdy around the toes and good solid um, leather boots. But I feel much more comfortable getting on the bike with long boots. If it's hot, it's hot. Your feet won't die in the heat. Uh, I've got to tell you a story about, um, you know, some people wear um, less up boots and things like that. Um, years ago, many, many years ago, I was wearing a pair of GP boots uh, laced up, <clears throat> which was all well and good, but the lace had sort of come undone and got tangled around the gear stick lever. And when I stopped, I tried to put my left foot down, couldn't get it off the bloody foot peak, could I? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, down we went. <laughs> but, um, yeah, um, uh, wearing lace-up boots on uh, a motorbike is um, a little dangerous and you best best be very careful. Yeah, I, that's what I used to wear as well. I, I used to wear hiking boots. And, you know, you, you get a certain amount of protection of them, but they're, they're, they've got the laces exposed and and they don't give you the the lower leg support. Now I have proper riding boots. I'm trying to think of the name of them. I, I just can't right now. It, it totally just escapes me. And I, and I thought I knew it right off on the top of my head, but they, they make an, this is, this is going to really give you some direction. They make an adventure boot. <laughs> you ever heard of such a thing? Yeah. Is it Forma? Yeah. Maybe it's Forma. Forma, yeah. Like, Forma. Jim, I, I just put mine out of the cupboard, and they're that damn old that the 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 brand name is worn off the back of them. So <laughs> I can't tell you. Well, ten years and they're still waterproof. That that really says something. I gather it's Gore-Tex inside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's Gore-Tex inside. For yeah, sure. see, I, I really like Gore-Tex line boots myself. I, I've had very good luck with them over the years. I'm, you know, really hard on boots and wear them for a long time. And uh, I've had this a similar experience where um, just no leaks. That that liner just keeps going and going and it never gets washed. You can't wash them in most boots. No, no. But what I like about them is that they're, they're, they're not a full motocross boot. You know how motocross boots have those clips all the way up, yeah. which take a fair bit of time. These have got two clips at the bottom and the top is Velcro. So it fits and I've got pretty wide calves and it, it fits my calves quite easily. Yeah. I notice a lot of older people prefer Velcro on their shoes. Sam, how about you? Well, I guess um, for me, wearing proper footwear on the bike is um, it's it's a must. Um, I know a chap who had his toes ripped off um, as a result of not wearing proper boots and much as I already knew that it was a sensible thing to always ride wearing decent footwear, um, that was just the underliner to me. And he had some fairly sturdy boots on. And surely um, I did um, a fair amount of um, our big trip with um, Blundstone boots on. They were great. and The leather was so thick. Mm. But um, as you say, no real padding or anything else um, um, in them. I wear um, boots now by a company called Altberg. They're three-quarter length, so they go up the calf. But I like these because um, they're a combination boot. So I can hike 
with them when I'm off the bike, as well as them being well and truly padded and protected in all of the places that you need. And I support that and because they don't come up above the shin, I always wear um, shin protectors in um, my trousers and I can take those out um, so that, you know, I can just change the the protective factor of, of the riding trousers. Um, so I like that combination. I just carry flip-flops for the rest of the time. So it's just two pairs of shoes um, on the bike. Um, I was listening very carefully to what you were saying with um, the laces because these are lace-up. And sometimes it really pees me off having to to spend the time lacing them up. But f- if I'm going to hike in them, um, having the ability to use the laces means that I can get them really snug on my foot so no blisters and that sort of thing. Um, so I quite like them, but yeah, for sure. I always um, triple knot those laces and I tuck the tails down in, inside the top of the boot so that they're not going to um, snag on anything. Brian, when you were describing what happened to you, yeah, that happened to me as well. Gosh, don't you feel like an idiot when it happens? Yeah, <laughs> very embarrassing, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I've had the same thing. Sam, I do the same thing with my boots. I, I, I used to tuck the laces into the boot so they won't catch mm-hmm. on anything. So you've just got your laces exposed. But I remember um, going down in a mud hole one time and I was stuck there because my laces had hooked on my foot peg. And, and the bike had fallen on me. So, and it was by myself. No. So it's one of those stupid situations where you're sitting there saying, okay, this is great. I can't even reach back to cut when it. You look around and you make sure that nobody else is watching. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and luckily I was there by myself. <laughs> no one did come by, but, but yeah, that, uh, that was one of those, uh, those times you think, okay, well, I can see these laces are a problem. Yeah. Shirley, when you mentioned about the same reason. Uh, Shirley, you mentioned about having the, the sole of your boot ripped off. Um, when I was coming down through Kenya, uh, riding on um, corrugated roads, and I came off, and I had um, knee-length boots on then, really proper um, motorcycle boots. But um, I bounced down the road over the top of the corrugations with the bike on top of my leg, and my leg would have been completely trashed had I not had those decent boots on. But the impact was was so strong. And for such a distance down these corrugations um, that it also ripped the sole off these boots. And goodness knows how that ever happened. But that was another underliner to me. Um, Yeah, your feet, they're kind of important to your body. You're not going to go very far without them. It's like um, gloves, Sam. Yeah. You see people riding without gloves and you think, okay, even a really slow off. What's the first thing you're going to put down on the ground? Mm. Your hands. So, ouch. Mm. Yep. Yep. I always mm. think of when when you've got a little kid learning to run, and every one of us did this. We were learned to run, and we fell on the pavement. How much did that hurt? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Running at, what, quarter of a mile an hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> ow, 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 ow. <laughs> yeah. I've got scars <laughs> in my wrist still from wearing short gloves. Mind you, that was a very fast crash road racing, but... Uh, yeah, I don't even wear short gloves anymore. I wear make sure they're at least three inches above my wrist. That's the minimum I'll wear. Yeah. Mm. Go ahead. The boots. Okay. Should I keep going on boots? No, then? no, no. I just heard Michelle just take a breath. She was just about to say something, and I, oh, I said, yeah. "Go ahead." <laughs> sure. I was just going to say I uh, I wear ankle boots at a minimum, and I 
I guess, you know, maybe it's because of having a tibial nail, which is a titanium rod from my knee to my ankle. Um, I don't have problems with it, but I just don't really trust myself. And I I think I'm just wary. I feel like I I learned that lesson and I want to keep learning from it. So I I really am an at-gat person, all the gear, all the time. Um, So if I'm riding around town, I at a very minimum will wear ankle boots, some sort of a hiking boot. But I really just feel most comfortable when I actually have riding boots on. And mine are uh, TCX boots that come almost all the way up to my knee. They have three buckles and Velcro. They're just they're just good and sturdy, and I, they make me feel safer. I feel more confident when I'm moving the bike, especially you know, as my 650 when it's fully loaded with you know panniers and a bag on it. That weight just is something that I don't necessarily feel as comfortable with unless I have reinforced boots on. So that just makes me feel more confident when I'm when I'm doing everything I'm doing with the bike. Mm-hmm. I thought you were going to say when you were saying about the titanium, titanium rod, I thought you were going to say you don't worry about boots anymore because you're, you got a titanium rod. <laughs> just, yeah, hey. My bionic leg. That's you're, right. Exactly. <laughs> you don't have to worry about it. I, I can just wear it's whatever. It's just the opposite. <laughs> I don't yeah. trust it. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, you've been through the pain. You, you realize uh, what, I mean, I, boots aren't going to save you from everything, but certainly, I mean, it, no. you know, it's one of those things. It's, it's just very obvious, you know, it's, it's obvious your feet are, are more protected in, in a tall boot. It's just, it's, it's a given. You don't have to be a scientist to figure that out. Yeah. I've seen too many pictures of accidents, motorcycle accidents, where there's a pair of shoes or a shoe lying on the road. Why is that shoe lying on the road? Well, that's because that's all he was wearing. Shoes are known in, in all kinds of medical, you know, the hurt report and stuff where they don't stay on. Yeah. All you need is a good impact and shoes come right off. Same with gloves. If your gloves aren't tightened with a strap at the wrist, gloves come off instantly when you're sliding down the road. So. Yeah. You've got to make sure that stuff is on solid. I wear my, uh, my now I wear my motocross style boots, even if I'm going on a short ride that they just, I, I get very used to the stuff, my gear, and I tend to just wear it anyway. So even when it's like really hot, I'm still wearing all my, my full gear just yep. because I'm, I'm used to wearing it. So it, it doesn't bother me. And the boots, yeah, they're big, they're clunky. You walk in a store, they're awkward. You know, they, they squeak. Yeah, and they get metal on the toes so that they they slip. Mm-hmm. You know, as you as you take your your step, but, but you get used to it. And it's I don't know to me, it's just no big deal. So it's part of the you know, what you do for riding a bike. Yeah, I think you, you don't actually need that um, metal on the toes unless you're doing serious serious dirt riding. On my dirt bike boots, well, my my one boots that I wear all the time everywhere. Um, I didn't bother to put the um, metal toe piece on. It's really to protect the soles from splitting if they're getting constantly jammed into the dirt. So yeah. you could take that off. I could, and I, I put it on for the reason on. is I, I just I just thought, well, I'll I'll just put them on to protect the boot because I do ride a lot of rougher stuff, and mm-hmm. um, the, it does take quite a beating. So it'll you know get hit on rocks and things like that. Uh, not a, not a lot, but enough. That's why I put them on. But I think in hindsight, yeah, I could probably take them off, and uh, the boots would probably be fine. I've got a pair of CD Crossfires right now. The original Crossfires, Crossfire Zeros or Ones or whatever they call them. Um, I absolutely love them. They're the most comfortable boot I've ever owned. I'll wear them anytime, anywhere. I've done minor hiking in them, you know, 20, 30-minute hikes up into the mountains for various things. I wouldn't do a serious hike in them by any means, but for everything else, they're great. They're really comfortable. Um, And the protection I get from the extra height, they're almost to my knee. But I also wear full knee pads, um, knee guards uh, with hard plastic on the outside, and they tuck inside the boot. 
and I feel well protected. I mean, I've been whacked enough off-road riding and racing and everything else that, yeah, I want full protection. And I've, I've fallen off. And, and it's funny, you know, you, you, when you're fully geared up and you're off-road riding and you fall off, you go, hmm, well, that was annoying. And there's no pain. This is a nice thing. I remember when I first started riding um, jeans and a pair of running shoes. And um, I think I had a corduroy jacket. That's right. It was a corduroy jacket. That was my heavy-duty off-road riding jacket. <laughs> yeah, and you fall off. Man, it hurts everywhere. <laughs> do, do you wear a chest protector as well? Uh, I don't so far, but I am certainly looking at one, actually. Well, I shouldn't say I don't. For off-road riding, I have um, a fo thick foam chest protector. But for street riding, I don't bother with it. Yeah, not so much for street riding, but for, for off-road riding. I've been thinking about for that. For off-road, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a necessary thing for off-road riding. Um, I'm actually looking also at um, a neck brace and leg mm -hmm. braces. My Both my knees are very bad, so I'm looking for leg braces. Now, instead of a neck brace, consider an air vest, which is going to do the same sort of thing, right? I'll not go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> mm. Is anyone else riding with no. an air vest? Any, any? No. No. Um, Brian, you haven't thought of that? No, nah, look, I, my, my uh, good um, BMW jacket has really good um, protection in it anyway. And, you know, you can go you can go as far as you want if you like, but uh, for me it's comfort is another thing. And I'm pretty comfortable just wearing my jacket, um, which has got a water bladder in the back of it as well too. So, you know, it, it gets quite heavy and – to me, comfort is a big thing. The jacket's got elbow protection, shoulder protection, back protection. Um, the boots are very protective. I've got um, individual riding pants for doing trail riding, which has got built-in shin and, and uh, knee protection and, and hip protection as well. So um, I just wear uh, that stuff and um, touch wood. Everything's gone so pretty well so far. Mm -hmm. I love it when the GP riders come off and their airbags go off and they sort of walk away looking like little, <laughs> yeah. little blown up Michelin men as they should go. Back. Yeah, yeah, but the, you know the, the thing is, if you look at some of those crashes, look at videos of, of crashes, people wearing air vests. It's pretty amazing the protection that oh is because goodness. the yeah. air vest is sort of yeah. does for your trunk, for for your internal organs, what the helmet does for your head. It's uh, yeah. it's pretty amazing, and I can certainly see it becoming more mainstream. I've I've got a climb one that um, they gave me to use. And it's weird because Brian, you're mentioning about, about uh, comfort. That's, that's the only thing because you're wearing something that's hopefully never going to be used. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah. then you're dealing with, okay, so now I got to live with this thing. And that, that's what I'm doing now is sort of, I like the, the idea that it's there. Um, but I've, I've got to live with it. I've got to live with that, that the idea or the, the uh, I wouldn't say discomfort, but it's another layer. It's another thing that you have to put on. And of course, this one's electronic, right. so you've got to make sure it's charged up and, and all the other things that go along with it. But um, boy, when you see the videos of, of where it goes off for people and see what it does, where the well, like you're saying, the MotoGP, they, they get up and walk away. Would they have without the air vest? Yeah, that's, yeah, a tough that's one. true. I'm, I'm stuck with thinking that uh, for road riding, it's not a bad idea. I'm not completely convinced, but... There's potential for off-road riding, which I'm doing a lot of now. Forget it because it's going to go off way too many times and you've got to get it checked and recharged and all kinds of stuff. It's just not going to work. 
So I just wear full armor. No, th- this one that, that I have, the, the climb one, it's got a setting on it where you can put it on what they call adventure mode. And I, and I think it doesn't even go off up to 20 kilometers an hour or something like that is basically what it's doing. So it's, so yeah, you're, you're kind of shutting it off for, for off-road stuff. But as you get up into the higher speeds, that's where it's going off. But, but I mean, you know, there's a bunch of different manufacturers that there, but, but they're giving you full support. Like that, that goes off in milliseconds. Long before you have a chance to impact a vehicle, even if it was a, if you hit a vehicle or hit the road. So yeah, new technology. Indeed. So, sorry, Jim, just before we get off that, um, yeah, boating um, life vests have all got these rechargeable things in them too. So, you know, it's becoming more common uh, in other um, sport theatres of sport too. So yeah. I, I think it is coming um, to a certain extent. Um and maybe they'll get better and better as time goes on. Well, they, they also have them for horseback riding, which surprised me. And a matter of fact, yeah. I think it was in horseback riding before it came into motorcycling. Uh, we had the guys from Helite on as well as uh, from In In Motion, which makes the vest for climb on the show a, a while back. And um, Helite started out doing it for um, light aircraft because that's what they did. They manufactured aircraft. But, but that, then I think they went into horses and then into motorcycling. So, and I think it's also using mm. skiing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so amazing protection. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, we say new technology, I think it's been around for a long time. I think Dane EC's had them for years. Anyone, anyone seen theirs? I think they've had them around for a long time. I, I could be wrong. One of the manufacturers have. Dane is yeah, one of the leaders too. in it. Yeah, but it's getting easier and easier with the recharging facilities and things like that. The little canisters you can buy for, um, we've got a, a small boat and, um, you know, the little canisters for your uh, your life vest and things like that. And you can just go into the shop and buy them now. You know? yeah. Before, it was a lot harder to get them recharged or deflated and if they went off and all well, that sort of stuff. Well, not so much so. for the motorcycle ones. They, they tend to be proprietary. You're, you're going to have to buy the, the one from the manufacturer. Helites are inexpensive, I would say. I mean, I forget, $20, $30 or something. But the Climb one, I think it's like 100 or $150 or something like that. Um, depending yeah. on what your dollar is, I'm, I'm sort of a hundred and maybe of, of us dollars, something like that. So that's that expensive be, if it goes off, you know, in a time where you didn't want it to go off. Yeah. And that's going to be the, the, um, the ticker for a lot of people until they get that price down, they won't become as popular as they should be probably. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Grant, you, you were talking about boots. I think I cut you off there. Yeah. Um, well, I, I love my boots that I've got now. Um, the funny part is I started, 1974, I was racing motocross in work boots, lace-up work boots, got a shoelace caught on the foot peg when I put it down in a corner, crashed and did a thorough job on myself and said, right, that's the end of the laces, and bought a pair of CD motorcycle race boots, Joel Robert replica boots. They're tall, leather, all leather, and a red, white, and green stripe down the front. And I thought, wow, these are amazing. And I felt so safe and so comfortable. And I put my foot down anywhere and didn't even think about it. I still got those boots <laughs> stuffed in a storage somewhere. And I had them out just a little while ago. And I looked at them and I thought, these things, are, they're, they're, they're floppy, sloppy. They're, they're useless. Oh, really? There's no protection there at all. And wow. yet at the time, they were the best you could buy. They were absolutely awesome. So were they so, just straight boots. sewn leather with, with no other supports? Yeah, uh, right. that's it. Just leather. And, there, you know, there's a bit of foam and a couple of extra layers in the front so that you got decent shin protection, considering that it's leather and foam. 
Um, but boot technology has come so far since then. It's just amazing. So when I think of, I hear people using hiking boots and leather shoes, I just shudder because they're, they're, you can get so much better and it can be so comfortable and you can be happy in them. I know Susan's gone through, I don't know, five or six pairs of boots at least. And she's finally found a pair that she likes, custom-made Altberg boots, like um, Sam was talking about. They're not the model he's got. He's, they're not, um, what do you call it, uh, lace-ups. Uh, they're zip-up with a Velcro closure at the top. But she loves them. They, they are brilliant. They fit. They absolutely fit her foot. And she's never had a pair that really were comfortable and fit. So maybe if you're having problems with boots and getting them, comfy because all the motorcycle boots you try just don't fit well Altberg will do you a custom fit so that's a nice thing Um, but I think from the things the experiences I've seen and stories I heard of mangled feet and bashed shins and all the rest of it um, having fallen off my motorcycle when I was 16 riding in jeans and um, running shoes and having the hot bare exhaust lying on my bare leg while the bike was on top of me. Um, yeah, tall boots are a good thing. You know? <laughs> I still got the scar on my leg. It's still crispy and it still hurts. I, every time I think about it, oh my God, that hurt. I've come off horses at speed before, but luckily, well, no, I have with a bike, but not, not, nothing serious, like no real speed, but the horses were the main thing. I've, I've been dragged by a horse too once and that was yeah. on asphalt, which we didn't have much of in, in our area, but that, that <laughs> I've was heard the horses fun. are dangerous, more dangerous than motorcycles. Somebody said to me once. Well, that's because <laughs> they have a really small brain. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yes, I have come off at speed. I've come off at over 120 miles an hour. Um, way back in the days of lousy riding protection. And uh, I can tell you, you don't want to do it. Mm. <laughs> it's no fun at all. Um, but yeah, I, I'm definitely an at-gat guy. I wear all the gear all the time. Um, the farthest I've been on my bike without all the gear is about 100 yards to make sure it runs, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Far past that, all the gear. It's just not worth it. I've seen too many, um, shall we call them road rashes, that are, an entire person's back, for instance, you know, things like that. Um, full, full helmets. Yes. Um, one poor girl in South America was wearing an open face helmet and fell on her face. I don't know how long the surgery and how many surgeries she went through to get some semblance of a face back, but not nice. Mm. So yeah, wear the gear, wear the gear. It's worth it. Grant, did you say what, what boots you're wearing for short trips and uh, as versus long trips? Same boots. Same I'm boots. wearing my oh, CD okay. crosswires. Um, on our around-the-world trip, I was wearing a pair of CD, oh, what were they called? They don't make them anymore. Um, but it's if you look at the CD Adventure boot that they have now, the CD Adventure and Adventure Rain, it would be a lighter weight version of that. It's a touring boot. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I think you need to have a boot that you are comfortable with the level of protection so that you feel, yep, I've got well-protected feet, and yet I can still walk around town a bit and not have to break out the running shoes. I carry running as an alternative footwear, and that does the job for me. You know, if your running shoes are fairly lightweight, they don't have to be big, heavy-duty, fancy, whatever's, um, squish them down, they fit into a small bag, and you've got a change of boots. Um, I did want to throw out one little tidbit that was really interesting. Touratech has a boot called the Destino, I think. Yeah, it's the Destino. 
It's got an inner boot, which you can take out and walk around in. Around camp is the primary idea. And you can also um, put a cable through the hole, which is built into the outer boot, and lock that to your bike and walk around in the inner boot for a quick trip around town. Kind of a cool idea. It sounds a little, it sounds like one of those gimmicky things. You've got a boot inside your boot. And if you take that off, you got a flip-flop. That's yes, you could do that too. Anyway, it's just a little, it's an idea. And I know some people have them that uh, think they're great. I am not particularly personally sold. I'd rather just swap, but some people think they're wonderful. So. Wouldn't it be nice though if the, if the boots had a liner that you could pull out somehow and dry them out when your feet get wet? Well, that is the idea. Part of the idea of these Destinos is it's an inner boot that you that is your actual inner boot, and the outside is basically just plastic and leather. Right, no but you've got a tread on everything on the inside one. It's not much of a tread. Oh, I see. It's very minimal. It's more of a camp boot or a short walk around town. You wouldn't you wouldn't go hiking in them by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. So it's an idea. It's worth checking out if you're if the idea sounds of interest. Well, Daniel, I, I hope that. Um Gave you some insight into what everyone's wearing. And, I, and I'm pleased to find out that Brian's not in flip-flops. flip-flops. That makes me feel better. <laughs> but I do have to say, you know, Grant was saying that even the shortest ride, he wears all his gear. When we were in lockdown and Brian was riding up and down the driveway, he wasn't wearing all his protective gear. You know, it's funny you mention that because yep. I was going to ask that question. I thought, no, I'm just picking on Brian too much. I'm not going to say it. But that, that question came up in my mind and I was going to ask. And I had the feeling he was on flip-flops with shorts or something. Yeah, one of the... Yeah. I, it's one of the granddaughters I was taking for a ride. I said, yeah, put your helmet on. She said, but Grandpa, you haven't got yours on. <laughs> <laughs> and you told her it's because your head's much harder than hers? <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Wow. Well, speaking yeah. of helmets, how about helmets? That was the other thing we were going to talk about is uh, what helmet do you wear and why? What are you wearing? Brian, let's start with you. Um, I wear Shark Evo helmets, and I'm, I think I'm under my third or fourth Shark Evo. A couple of reasons. I like the um, convertibility of it. You know, you flip the chin piece right over the back. It doesn't sit up there in the breeze and catch the wind. Um, it's very versatile. It's got an inbuilt um, um, visor, um, so you can go if you're you know, rather than wearing um, sunglasses underneath your, your helmet, which can be pretty uncomfortable you can just pull the visor down a little and it's fully adjustable that way um some people complain that they're a little noisy um but i don't find that too bad um i've always always had them i I like the ability of when you're going when you're trickling around um you can lift the visor up and flick it right over the back and it flicks down and clicks in and is quite firm um, for um, road riding. I've got a Bell off-road motorcycle helmet, um, which, again, is pretty comfortable and obviously a little bit more solid with the peak and all the rest of it. That's probably the one thing. I've seen people riding with peaks. Um, road riding, I'm not so sure whether it would be too too much wind resistance and, and give you a, a neck um, ache because of that. So my main helmet is actually the Shark Evo and I replace it 
every three, four or five, five years. I think this one's up to its fourth year, so I'm just about due to replace it again. They're not the most expensive helmet going around, but very, very versatile and uh, I reckon almost the perfect helmet for adventure riding. It's just my choice. Right, and you like the flip-up because the the communication thing. Uh, yes, and also when you're coming into town, it also gives you a bit more vision. You know, you can get rid of the, the whole bit if you want to. Um, and if you pull up and have a chat or want to have a talk, you can just flip it over the top. And uh, today, yesterday, actually, I was standing around talking to a few guys. We were pulling up, just breaking up from our ride, and you just flip the, the, the chin piece up and uh, other guys are taking their helmets off because you can't hear them. Oh, yeah. You know, so sure. I, I, I find it very good. Sure. Yeah, I was going to say, Shirley, um, are, are, are you riding with the same brand of helmet as Brian? No, no. I don't like the shark helmet. It doesn't fit my head. I must have a different shaped head to him. No, um, I've, got a, head. I've got a Nolan. <laughs> I've had BMW helmets and Shoei helmets, um, but the Nolan I've got now. But I wear a flip top, but just um, it just goes to the top like a normal one, not like the shark one. And I like that too for when we come into a town that you can open it up and get some air around your face. But I wouldn't ride in a um, with an open okay. face helmet and I get annoyed with my travelling companion when he has his open, um, when we're on the open highway. Uh, Grant's story just said she was up my spine um, and a friend of ours came off at low speed and she had pretty badly grazed face. It wasn't very attractive and it was pretty painful. But, you know, there was an advertising campaign back in the 60s, if you've got a $10 head, wear a $10 helmet. (laughs) I haven't heard that actually. But uh, yeah, I mean, look at the Hurt Report. It uh, shows that um, when your face goes down or when you you go down, that a lot of the impact, most of the impact was um, in the chin area. Uh, People are experiencing on their helmets. So definitely worthwhile having chin protection. Sam, what are you wearing? When I was on the big trip, I started it off with uh, an open face most cross helmet. And um, what Brian said about the peak was was right when I was riding at speed. Um, my head was bobbling around all over the place and it was catching the wind and I did get quite a sore neck. But I was such a novice motorcyclist, I never knew whether that was just purely and simply because I didn't build up the neck muscles. Um, I didn't like riding with an open face helmet um, that much because even with goggles on, I used to find it was... Um, uh, you know, the dust and the, and the heat and so on. Um, a, a full face helmet um, provided my face with an awful lot more protection from um, the heat and um, the wind and the rain and that sort of stuff. And actually, when I came off um, on, in, on in the desert in Namibia, I did actually break my jaw in two places. Um, and that was because I was wearing an open face helmet. Um, so I've never done that since. I wear a, um, a flip front um, showing the AirTech 2. And um, yeah, like Shirley said, you know, it's a, it's a helmet, it's a head shape thing. And um, I fit um, showies really nicely. Our eyes are just the wrong shape for me. Um, I like the flip front for the reasons that the guys have just said, that it's a great way to be able to communicate, um, asking directions. I know that's a dying art with GPS, but I still do it. Um, and I like the ease of being able to have conversations with people. I like the, the Neotech too because um, the flip locks into place and it's one of the ones that um, is legal to ride with um, the flip open and I do ride when I'm going around town for example um, at slow speeds with it open. Um, I have listened very carefully to what um, Shirley's just said Um, but I kind of like it and one of the reasons that I like it is because of the shade that it gives 
um, when it's um, it's really hot and I'm traveling at slow speed in traffic. It just, um, yeah, I find that quite a comfortable thing to do. But as soon as I'm on the open road, that's it. Bang, down that front comes. Um, and yeah, it's got um, the drop-down sun visor. And I learned the, the pure value of that um, in Norway because, of course, you go in some tunnels and if you're wearing sunnies, some of those tunnels just don't have lighting inside. And if you're wearing sunglasses, then all of a sudden, bang, um, you've got no light, um, the darkness of sunshades on. But if you if I'm wearing just normal glasses with uh, the flip-down sun visor, well, it takes a second to, to wallop that back up again and um, what a difference it makes. So, yeah, flip front for the ease and um, for the comfort and for the practicality. The flip fronts do have one disadvantage though, Sam. If you've got a long beard and you flip it down and lock it in, sometimes you can lock your beard in there. <laughs> Brian, I've never locked my beard in, but I have actually locked my moustache in. There you go. And Sam, Brian doesn't listen to my advice, so I certainly wouldn't expect you to. Well, but, but I am listening, Shirley. I mean, it's very important. It's one of the things I like about this show. I never come away with it from it without having learned something. You don't have to regard what you learn, of course. Yeah, got it. Well, that is true. That is true. <laughs> Grant, how about you? Definitely full flip face helmet. Um, I'm wearing currently wearing a Touratech, um, what do they call it, Aventuro, I think. Uh, it's great. I started off using flip front helmets in 97, I think, with uh, the BMW helmets, went through several of those, and then uh, went into Schuberth, and then to the Touratech, all flip fronts. And one of the reasons is I wear glasses, and flip fronts are way easier to put on than taking your glasses off, finding a place to put them safely, putting your helmet on, and then feeding your glasses back through, which never quite works perfectly. Oh, Grant, I should have mentioned that. You're so right. Yeah. Pain in the neck. Um, And speaking of Sam's experience in Norway, I had the same one. I was wearing prescription sunglasses, um, went into a tunnel, and, oh, my God, I can't (laughs) see a thing. Absolute pitch black. Fortunately, my eyes are good enough that if I, I could pull the sunglasses down and see over the top, and while then I wasn't actually legal and safe to drive um, without my glasses, it was adequate. I could do it okay. It's better than going in the dark. Um, oh, it was terrible. Pitch black. Yeah. Absolutely pitch black. There's no lights. There's nothing. And your motorcycle helmet or motorcycle headlights a joke um, when you're transitioning because, of course, your eyes have adapted to bright sunlight. And it's, there's nothing. Yeah. So I learned pretty quickly about that. Um, and the sun visor on my Touratech and on the later BMW helmets, yes, that is that is the answer. That's absolutely fantastic. Um, so I'm a big fan of a flip front helmet. I used to wear Arise in the days before flip fronts and loved them. They were great. I think they're very, very good helmets. Um, but that's a, an option you choose. Um, I'm looking now, or actually to respond to Sam's comment about the visor, on my 1200GS with a windscreen, I can't wear the visor on the helmet. It just bubbles my head around like crazy. Um, on my dirt bike, which has no windscreen at all, I can wear the visor at 75 miles an hour and it's fine. Dead smooth, no issue, no vibration, no bobble, nothing. It's just interesting. fine. It's perfect. I have no issues. But the dirty air coming off the windscreen catches the 
uh, peak and it's all over the place. So you ha it's, it's one of those things you have to experiment with. You have to try it. So the Touratech helmet um, peak and all dirt bike helmet peaks now um, have a lot of ventilation. So that's much less of a problem than it used to be. Yep. Yeah, my, yeah, my bell's like that, and you're right, you know, on the dirt bike when there's no nothing in front of you, um, that's fine. Um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I'm lo actually looking for a proper dirt bike helmet now because the Touratech Aventuro is a bit heavy for riding off-road, um, and I can't wear goggles with it, which would actually be a nice thing uh, because I can't get the, the holes not big enough for goggles and to get my glasses inside the goggles, which just ends up being a nightmare. Um, so I've been looking at uh, new dirt bike helmets and there's some new stuff out there. And for those of you who haven't heard about it, the, the new thing in helmet protection is MIPS. I know everybody's going to say, what's, what's MIPS? Well, MIPS is um, multi-impact protection system. I think they call it is. That's what it translates to. Anyway, what it does is it's an interface of rubber between the outer shell and the inner shell so that the helmet can actually rotate on your head. And that gets rid of or partially eliminates or reduces the shearing impact when you hit something side on, like you bounce down the road and you slide on the road. That initial twisting impact is reduced with this MIMP system. Uh, Bell has it. Uh, 6D was the originator of it, and they've done a great job with it. And I'm actually looking at buying a 6D helmet for myself. So I think if you're looking for a new helmet, flip front is a good thing, if that works for you, may or may not. Um, and the MIPS system is definitely worth doing. It's I think it's a, a huge step forward in helmet safety. It's It's been a long time coming. And and some of them are just the liner itself. It, it has a almost like a little cap inside that allows the yeah. helmet to rotate. So it's not a real complicated system. It's, it's a simple, no. a simple. It's interesting that we're still using expanded foam in helmets. That yeah. that's what we <laughs> yeah. started with. We're still using that. I mean, it's amazing that that, that technology yeah. has not changed. I mean, I know there's other ideas out there, but. Um, but that's pretty incredible. I'm using a, a fly racing one, which is um, just a relatively inexpensive helmet, has no flip up on it, but it does have the peak. And, and I, you know, I think I noticed it at first that it used to grab the wind a lot, but I'm, I think I'm used to it now and I, I don't worry about it. So it's, um, you know, you can get used to it, but mind you, I'm not doing an awful lot of like straight high speed highway. Um, so I think, you know, if you, if you were doing that, you might find it more of a hassle. M Michelle, what are you wearing? Well, I was... <laughs> I was going to say in Patagonia, I rode with a uh, helmet with a peak and that's the worst place in the world <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to, oh, yeah. uh, to wear a peak. But I did. And you kind of build up those neck, neck muscles or something and you <laughs> eventually get used to it. But yeah. I, so when I um, started out doing dual sport riding, I bought a showy because I did the same thing. I ordered an Arai and a showy and there's something about my cheekbones or my head shape, but I, whatever it is, the showies felt much more comfortable to me than the Arise and they're both spectacular helmets. Um, but I bought a Hornet DS and then after that trip and a spill, um, of course, wanting to make sure I had enough protection, I got a new helmet. So I got a, another, the newest version of the showy Hornet X2. 
And I still ride with that. So I still ride with the peak. Um, you know, and there's something that I like about that when I'm doing dual sport riding that that peak keeps just enough of the sun out of my eyes. I can lean sort of at the right angle that I don't have to stop as often to put on sunglasses. Um, and that seems to work for me. I, I really am comfortable with that. But I, I, I'm still looking. I, I think I'm looking for a, a flip front um, helmet. I think that's something I want to try out. I do a little bit of uh, dirt bike riding and uh, riding of fire trails and out in the forest um, here in the Black Hills. So I bought an LS2 and wear that with goggles, which helps to really reduce the amount of dust that I'm getting in my eyes. And I'm, I'm enjoying that um, as a different way to um, experience riding. And, and I'm learning, I'm, I feel like such a rookie, but with different lens colors on my goggles. And that's kind of fun for the different seasons and um, just really makes a difference in what you're seeing visually and how you notice so many things and textures um, and different, you know, rocks and things in the terrain that you're riding over. So that's been fun to play with, but I've been very happy with all the helmets that I've had so far. Okay, so uh, moving on to plugs, Michelle, what do you have for plugs? Well, I'm going to have kind of a random one. It's not so much specific, but just uh, because of the conversation that we've had today and talking about travel and, and especially with the lockdown the last year and a half with COVID and in uh, the Northern Hemisphere winter coming on, for those people that aren't able to travel um, yet themselves, I just am such a believer in finding a book to escape and take uh, a journey through. So I'm just going to say, go find yourself a book that's written by a motorcycle traveler. There's so many authors out there. I, in fact, have a list now, thanks to a couple of friends who've been contributing, that has over 200 books on it, which mm -hmm. is crazy to me. I had no idea there were that many out there, but some fantastic authors, uh, obviously Sam Manicum, Shirley, um, so many people that we know have written some fantastic books. Are so, you saying motorcycle travel books or motorcycle books in general? Motorcycle travel books. Absolutely. Cool. Thank yeah. you for the clarification. Yeah. Um, yeah. And especially with Christmas coming, I think it's, it's time to get some books for yourself and for your loved ones. Very nice good. Um, and, and like I say, the links are, are in the show notes for each episode. Each of, of you who are on here have links in those show notes. So if you're wondering about the books that, and everyone has books here with the exception of Grant and myself, so drop by the website and look at those links and you can go by and check out the books. Cause yeah, it's, it's Christmas time and it's time to treat yourself or somebody else. I hadn't thought about that. Good point. Shirley, what do you have? <sighs> I was going to plug our books. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> um, Do you want a minute the, to the think about it? No. Uh, the situation with Australia, we've had problems with um, postage because of COVID and so few flights coming to Australia with us being shuttered up for the season. Um, but where um, our international borders are starting to open and so that means postage will not be such a delay. So if people are wanting... Um, our books from us rather than from Amazon or whatever if they go to our website. I can't guarantee you'll get them for Christmas, but if you if you put your order in now, we'll post it the next day and hopefully Australia Post won't let you down. Okay. Grant, uh, Grant what do oh, you have? Sorry. I've, I've got a couple of things. Speaking of books, horizonsunlimited.com slash and just for Jim. 
books, horizonsunlimited.com slash books is a list of hundreds of motorcycle travel books. I like that. Yeah. And Simple. To Sam's the point. in there and everything. Yeah. Lots Thank of Thank you very much. In fact, Sam is the very first one on motorcycle travel stories. Hey. Hey, there you go. And there's Overland Travel Prep and Motorcycle Travel Guides, Vehicle Prep and Maintenance, Overland Travel Stories, Skills, Medical for Travel, all kinds of stuff. So check that out. Nice and easy. And of course, hey, while Grant, you're at this it, is a pretty good website you've got because you got a lot of stuff on there. And people should check <laughs> this out, horizonsunlimited.com. That's kind of cool. Thank you. Yes. Um, we've, this website has now been going since 1997. It's a long Christmas time. 97 in Ushuaia, it went live. So, yeah, we've been around for a while. And just keep adding stuff on and keep more and more stuff. And people keep saying, hey, what about this? And, oh, okay, there it is. And don't forget so, the tabs yep. that we gave you today. I had one in there. Michelle had one. Yep, there we go. Now all you got to do is send me an email with the names of those because I've forgotten them already. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm getting old. What can I say? <laughs> um, and the other one, of course, is go to horizonsunlimited.com slash events and see what event is coming to you next year. There'll be something in our area, we hope. Sounds good. And that is definitely a must for, um, well, I guess the coming year. Well, no, it starts now, doesn't it? I mean, do you have them coming up in January? Uh, the first one is California in April at this point. In April. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So not far away. Okay. That's great. Nope. Thank you, Grant. Sam, what do you have? Well, it's funny this, but I was going to plug my books. <laughs> oh, wow. Great minds think alike. Because guess what? It's Christmas coming up and I tell you what, it does feel so funny. You know, here we are in October and we're all thinking um, Christmas. But the reality is it is coming and people do spend time thinking, well, you know, what do I get for for Fred down the street and for my mate Joe that I always ride with? And um, what am I going to treat myself with? And when somebody says to me, what do I want for Christmas? What am I going to say? Well, I mean, books are just great for that. And there are some cracking books out there. Um, can I suggest, Paul, um, not only look at Amazon, but look at their local bookshop. And if they've got time to order a book, then do it through their local bookshop. A lot of the local guys, um, the solo independents, as well as the mainstreams, they've been struggling through COVID with the lack of footfall and so on. And if we want these guys to still be around, um, then we need to make a point of ordering books um, through them. So yeah, just get on their websites or go in and see them and order books via them. And besides Amazon, what wonderful resource that it is, um, check out the book depository because um, they do free worldwide delivery of so many books. So it's well worth looking out for them. And of course, um, have a hunt for Kindles and for audio books and uh, check out both iTunes and, and Audible. But um, if anybody wants any um, further information about my books or even a signed copy, um, then just go to my website. And yeah, thank you very much to Jim and Elizabeth for putting that in the show notes. And um, yeah, I hope people enjoy them. And yeah, there are some just amazing um, motorcycle travel books out there. And not everybody can go traveling, but what a great way to go traveling from your armchair. Mm, Good no book. Mm. No doubt. Well, thank you, Sam. Brian, what do you have? Um, I'm not going to find a book. 
I'm actually. Uh, <laughs> Brian's <laughs> trying oh, to be different here. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we've been talking about motorcycle safety and motorcycle gear and all that sort of stuff. And uh, as I've said before, I'm on this um, um, panel which uh, has direct influence in the government um, uh, processes in relation to motorcycle uh, safety and events that are happening here. There's a site that's been set up, and you might know, but here in Victoria, we actually pay an extra levy in our registration, which supposedly goes to motorcycle safety issues. It's an extra $60 a year, which a lot of people have a bit of a problem with, uh, paying more than uh, other road users. So, um, some of this money has been sent to a, um, a, a site where they test motorcycle gear and uh, actually rate the safety of uh, motorcycle gear. And it's done by um, very independently by uh, Boffins down in uh, Geelong, not far from here. Um, and the site is motocap.com.au uh, and they test um, new products that come on the line, boots, helmets, uh, jackets, things like that, gloves, and um, it's well worth having a look at because not the most – and it surprised me, actually. There's stuff there where they've tested some very expensive motorcycle gear and it doesn't rate as highly as some of the cheaper gear. Um, mm-hmm. So I thoroughly recommend um, anyone who's interested in um, purchasing new gear, have a look at it and just compare it's it's uh, it's in it's in its infancy. It's not um, doesn't test everything that's on the market at the moment, but they're getting there. Um, and they've just put up uh, a jacket today, I think. Actually, um, you, you can sign up for yeah. emails on, on that website as well, and they will email yeah. you every time they have a new product on. But but they also yeah. they're, they're fairly simple with the way they they grade things as well, and they use modern techniques for for their testing. So yeah, it's um it's quite yeah. uh, quite good. I imagine it's going to go places. That's right, and it's it's funded by us motorcyclists. Yeah, I'm surprised. So, Sixty dollars a year—that is a lot of money. It is, it is, but it's at least it's only on one registration. Yeah. Not, if you own another bike, well, you know, you, you paid your sixty bucks. Oh, is it on the bike or on your license? It's on your on the bike on the bike on the registrate on the registration of the bike. So, with you going in with like twenty bikes, you you can say I already sort of gave already at the first yeah, bike. Yeah, yeah. Yep, that's exactly right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So anyway, motorcap.com.au. Well worth it. Okay, great plugs. Well, that's it. We're, we're wrapping it up then. Thank you very much, everyone. That was absolutely fantastic and enjoyable as always. Had a lot of fun, a lot of stuff to learn here. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Yeah. Thank you, Jim. Yeah, it's yes, good. Thank and, and, you, Jim. And Michelle picked up a great tip on how to reduce some costs at her motel. Just turn the internet off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Not a bad idea there. Well, that wraps things up for this month's ARR Raw. And thank you to my co-host, Sam Manicom, starting with Sam Manicom. He lives in the UK. He's got four books and audiobooks that follow his eight-year motorcycle journey around the world. His website, sam-manicom.com. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are from Australia. They also have published their own books on motorcycle travel. You can buy them wherever you get e-books at their website, aussiesoverland.com.au. Michelle Lampfair is a moto traveler that also has a couple of great moto travel books, The Butterfly Route and Tips for Travel 
Traveling Overland in Latin America. Both of those titles available on Amazon. As well, she has a motel for us motorcyclists and anyone else called the Chalet Motel. You can find out more about that at chaletmotelcuster.com. And of course, Grant Johnson is from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for our adventure motorcycling community. Horizons Unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information, as well as a huge forum of dedicated travelers that connect you with other travelers. They also put on the hub meets around the world. You can see a worldwide list of hub meets at their website, horizonsunlimited.com. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you for listening. Join us again next time. Oh, and don't forget, if you want to get uh, your question or a topic suggestion in here, drop by our website. You can also look at the show notes. I have some more information in here. You can make comments on the show notes. AdventureRiderRadio.com. 